Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Now, in a world first for the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast, you are listening to an intro to the intro to the episode. You see, what is coming up is my interview with US math educationalist and, in my eyes, complete legend, Mr. Robert Kaplinsky. It is one of my favourite episodes. But I just wanted to take this opportunity to share three things with you. First, provide a bit of context around the episode. Secondly, I want to offer a sincere word of thanks. And thirdly, an announcement from me. So let's start with some context. I recorded this interview with Robert on the 3rd of March 2020. And I'm recording this intro to the intro on the 22nd of May 2020. Now in those space of those two and a half months, obviously the world has completely changed. So I just wanted to point out that when I'm speaking to Robert, we're certainly aware of the COVID-19 outbreak, but over here in the UK, schools are still open, uh, lockdown has yet begun, and as I say, it feels like a completely different time. However, having listened back to the episode, we I still think it's completely relevant, particularly the bits when we start to talk about online CPD, because as I say, uh, we're very aware that there's something coming. We have no way of knowing the severity of it or the impact it's going to have. But towards the end of the conversation, when we get on to CPD and the changing nature of that, it's fascinating to listen back to it with what we know now. So as I say, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context about when the episode was recorded, just in case you think it's a bit weird that we're not... Uh, talking all about school closures and all that, which seems to dominate every single conversation that I have with anybody these days. Um, Secondly, a word of thanks. Um, Many of you may not be aware of this, but uh, I know some people uh, who listen to this follow me on Twitter and so on. Um, I've been struggling a little bit of late. Um, You may have heard this actually come out in recordings. I did a teaching from home series where I uh, recorded 11 episodes over a relatively short space of time. Uh, to try and offer support to teachers um, who were struggling during uh, the school closures to provide ideas, resources, inspiration and so on from other teachers who were dealing with similar situations. Uh, What I didn't realise during the recording of those is that I was really, really struggling myself. Um, It's hard. I'm I'm in a situation that's familiar to many, many, many uh, people out there in in that our little boy, Isaac, um, is at home now. Obviously, nurseries are closed. My wife's a key worker with the NHS. So um, we're having, well, I'm having to do um, a lot of childcare. And if I'm entirely honest, I'm not particularly good at it, it turns out. turns out that I seem to specialise in terms of childcare and the kind of cameo appearances. Um, I'm away a lot normally during the week doing talks and workshops and and visiting schools. Um, And my wife uh, does an incredible job. I've always known that, but wow, God almighty, I I don't know how she does it. So now poor little Isaac stuck with me for, for much of the day. And yeah, I'm finding it hard. I felt that I'm failing as a father. I felt I'm failing um, at my job because I I can't split my time between both. Whenever I'm looking after Isaac, I'm thinking about all the emails that are coming in, all the stuff I need to do. Whenever I'm working, I'm thinking I've only got this 45-minute period to work and then I've got to 
look after Isaac and so on. And um, and I feel I'm failing as, as a husband as well. And I've, I've never felt this way before. So um, yeah, I just wanted to um, just explain that situation. That's that's why you haven't heard um, podcasts for a few weeks and also why I came off Twitter for, for a couple of weeks. Um, so I just wanted to explain that situation. And also um, if anybody else is feeling um, a similar way in these weird times, um, I just wanted to throw it out there that, that you're not alone. As I say, this has been unprecedented for me. I've never felt anything like this before. It's come as a shock. But also, I just wanted to offer my sincere thanks. Um, I, I put out on Twitter that I was struggling. Not And genuinely, I didn't put it out there to get any sympathy or, or anything like that. My sole reason was to just explain to people why they wouldn't be hearing from, from me for a while. But also, as I say, just in case other people are feeling something similar and um, could relate to what I, what I was feeling. But I've had so many... Um, so many messages of support. It's been really, really touching. And, and what's been fascinating is a lot of those messages have come from come from men, uh, men who are feeling in, in a similar way, who perhaps, and it's a sign of the times really, um, men who perhaps haven't done as much of the childcare responsibilities um, as, as they would have done um, in the past and have found this a real shock and are struggling like me to, to juggle both, trying to be a good father, to be a good worker, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you. I've read every single one of your messages um, and they've, they've meant the world to me. Um, I'm feeling loads better now. Um, still not sleeping so great. Isaac hasn't quite mastered the art of sleep, but hopefully um, he will do soon. But yeah, just 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 thank you. Um, it was a very hard time for me, a very weird time. Um, nothing compared to some of the things other people are going through. But I just wanted to say, thank you. Um, and the final thing before I shut up, well I say shut up because actually you're going to hear from me again, uh, a voice from the past back in March doing my uh, doing my intro, is just an announcement. Um, I do a lot of talks, a lot of workshops, a lot of conferences. Um, I obviously had a load booked in to, to go through to the end of the academic year, uh, but they've all been cancelled obviously because of, because of school closures and social distancing and so on. So I've had lots of requests from, from teachers and the organisers of these conferences whether I could do anything about it. And there was talk of like live webinars where people log in and so on. But the difficulty with things like that is often you get issues with technology, with people logging in at the same time and then people can't connect and all that kind of thing. So what I've done instead um, is something I've been, I've been wanting to do for ages. And it's really strange, actually. This ties in perfectly with this episode with Robert because we talk loads about online CPD at the end of our conversation is I am in the process of making online versions of my five most popular workshops. Uh, two of these are live now, that's making the most of worked examples and formative assessment and diagnostic questions. And the other three will be live in the next couple of weeks. Um, depending on when you listen to this, if you listen to this at some point in June, they may well all be live now. Um, now, I was a bit of an online workshop skeptic when I started the preparation for doing these, but having signed up to a load of online courses to get a feel for what I liked and what I didn't like, and then try to put my own unique spin on this, I'm absolutely loving doing it. So if we take, for example, the formative assessment and diagnostic questions workshop, that consists of 80 videos. Uh, the making the works example one consists of 60 videos. So I can record short, sharp videos, maybe three minutes, five minutes, seven minute videos, where I'm able to make a key point in that video or, or share an idea. And then you can just pause the video before moving on to the next one and reflect on that idea. Um, what I'm also able to do is link to all the research that I cite um, in the in a short video, any podcast I mention, any resource I mention. So you can go off and investigate that and then you can come back when you're ready and watch the next video. 
And of course, what you can also do is you can watch these videos as many times as you like. So unlike at a live face-to-face -face event where if you fail to hear, uh, understand something because of my dodgy Northern accent and you wish, oh, I wish you'd have said that again or I missed that, you can go back and watch these videos as, as many times as you like. So um, obviously the, it doesn't quite replicate the face-to-face -face experience. The thing that's particularly lacking is collaboration. You're not sat around on a table discussing and arguing uh, with, with, uh, with other colleagues. There's ways to replicate that. Uh, you can take the course alongside someone else and set up uh, Zoom meetings or WhatsApp calls and so on and so forth. But the more I do these uh, courses um, and the more I take um, other people's courses, the more I realize there are actually loads of advantages to these and, and not least of which obviously in this current time is the fact that you can take this course at a time and a place that is both safe and, and convenient for you. Um, so I'll put a link to these courses in the show note pages. Um, I've tried to keep the cost as absolutely as low as possible. Um, it's a fraction of what it would cost to attend a normal uh, day course. And hopefully you'll agree with me that there's so much more in them. So um, as I said, I just wanted to, to just mention those three things, a bit of context about this episode that was recorded back at the start of March, a sincere word of thanks. And then I just wanted to make that announcement about my online courses, uh, just in case you find them useful. Oh, I should say, by the way, the, the next three courses that are coming are on my four ingredients of retrieval um, at the time of recording. I'm midway through uh, recording that. That's going really well. Um, my four ingredients of problem solving. And then the final big course I'll put out for now is going to be on intelligent practice. I've also put out some free courses. I've taken my topics in depth series that I recorded with Joe Morgan, and I'm in the process of making that into these short videos so you can dip in uh, whenever you want. Want. The first one of those is live as well. Anyway, as I say, I'll put links to that in the show notes. Right, uh, let me shut up then and let me hand over to Craig Barton speaking back at the start of March 2020. This was a Craig who was blissfully unaware of the um, <laughs> incoming crisis, both personally and globally. So therefore still did those crazy um, hello introductions. It doesn't feel quite right to do them anymore. Maybe maybe they'll come back, we'll see. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to this bit. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And above all, I hope you and your families are safe. Take care, see you in a bit. <laughs> episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Robert Kaplinsky. Robert has been an educator since 2003 as a classroom teacher, teacher specialist for Downey Unified School District, instructor for the University of California, Los Angeles, and presenter at conferences around the world. He is also the author of Open Middle Math, Problems That Unlock Student Thinking from Grades 6 to 12, creator of the hashtag Observe Me movement, and, if that wasn't enough, co-founder of Open Middle. Now, I have been wanting to get Robert on the show for ages. I flip in love Open Middle, I love the lesson ideas he shares on his blog, and I love getting his emails in my inbox with subject lines like... Ready for controversy? I don't think we should be training all teachers. Nice, hey? And I'll tell you what, Robert did not disappoint. So in a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. 
What is Robert's favourite failure and what did he learn from the experience? And I'll tell you what, it is a cracker. What are the current areas of interest and debate amongst US maths teachers? Can you teach problem solving like you can teach adding fractions? What is the depth of knowledge framework and what would it look like for something like ordering fractions? What are open middle problems? And again, Robert provides us with a cracking example. What has Robert learned about getting the most out of open middle problems? Why does Robert think online CPD is the future? And what is something important that Robert has changed his mind about? I absolutely loved this conversation. It's always fascinating to speak to educators from different parts of the world. And this interview fits nicely into my growing US collection together with Dan Mayer and Michael Pershing. I hope you will take a lot away from it. Now, one big plug before we start, my second book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, is out now. It is my potentially controversial look at how to use carefully varied sequences of questions and examples in the classroom to enable our students to think mathematically. It also features an epic 40,000 word chapter on how the core ideas from my first book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, have developed in the last two years since the book's release. Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain is available from all good and evil bookstores. And in the takeaway at the end of this show, I'll be reflecting on how Robert's open middle problems and the depth of knowledge framework in general would fit into my views and fit into the book and in particular my model of a learning episode. So stick around for that one. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Robert Kaplinsky. I'll tell you what, what a cracking voice he has as well. I was very jealous of it when I when I heard him speak. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Robert, so we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Um, you know, I actually like the number 55, and it's a really strange reason, but it's because I my favorite baseball player growing up was this guy on the LA Dodgers named Oral Hershiser, and he was number 55, and I've always enjoyed that number since then. Nice. Unique answer that, Robert. We've never had a 55 before, so that's a, that's a <laughs> solid start. Um, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Oh, and I should say, by the way, we've got to get this out of the way early on. I'm going to go for maths, um, if that's all right with you. I'll, I'll keep me S on the end of it. So <laughs> that, that sounds fine. Fantastic. So what, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? You know, I strangely really like this class logic that I took, uh, which would maybe like be more like a, a college logic class that uh, I, I didn't really see this kind of math again until I was in college, but really like a, a P implies Q and Q implies R. So P implies R. And I, I would say that it felt, I guess, really logical. It made sense. It had rules that were consistent and understood. And I felt like I had the most control of math in that topic. Wow. Well, what age did you take that? Uh, I took it in seventh grade. And and if I'm being really honest, I think it really just set me up for failure for everything else because <laughs> now now kids get pre-algebra before they go from sixth grade to algebra in eighth grade. And I did not have any pre-algebra. So I think that actually impacted me a lot, even though I enjoyed it. Uh, it wasn't exactly the best timing for that class. Jeez. Now, I, I'll tell you what, but, uh, Robert, we've had a couple of um, guests from the US on, um, Dan Mayer, to, to, to name one of them. Could you just clarify, because I always struggle with this as a teacher from the UK. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the US, am I right in saying, so something like pre-algebra, 
you would do that for an entire year would that be right and there'd be no kind of statistics or geometry in the mix it's kind is it kind of one area of mathematics per year or is that oversimplifying it a bit i so we're i would say like from kindergarten through sixth grade so basically the, the first years of the first seven years of education for a student it's integrated so you have a little bit of uh, number sense a little bit of statistics a little bit of geometry a little bit of um uh, measurement and geometry, you know, something like yes. that, uh, and measurement and data. And so you have that through sixth grades. Um, after that, it gets really inconsistent because we've had these common core standards, but then some states did not adopt it or they've shifted away. Um, by the time you get to high school, you have algebra uh, in, in ninth grade, usually geometry in 10th grade, algebra two in 11th grade, and then maybe calculus or pre-calculus at some point. Middle school, though, is kind of funky because some places they'll call it pre. Well, now they don't call it pre-algebra. They just call it math six, math seven and math eight. And if you're a common core state, then you still have this kind of integrated math. But really, it's the the standards. When I was a child, it was called pre-algebra. But now it's really just still an integrated mix of some algebraic concepts, some operation, you know, number and operation concepts, uh, some statistics concepts. uh, And then it gets more specific by the time you get to high school. I see. And would, would a teacher just teach pre-algebra or would they teach a, a mixture of different different grades? So up until, so most, so through elementary school, it's usually self-contained. And so you teach just the one like, grade level and you'll teach, uh, you know, every subject. Yes. Uh, when you get to middle school, um, you, you might be specializing in math, but uh, depending on what the needs are for the school, it might be that you teach just sixth grade math or just sixth and seventh. Um, it, it really depends more on the needs of the school. Uh, there are pros and cons of both. Like honestly, if you teach the same subject uh, five times, you kind of get tired of hearing yourself talk. Um, you're like, did I say that already, or was that another period? Um, and yeah, and so so generally speaking, I, it's rare. I would say that most teachers teach between two and three different. We call them preps. Two and three different uh, topics. Uh, in math education uh, at any one time. It's pretty rare to have more than three. It's pretty rare to have just one. Fantastic. Superb. And again, you'll have to forgive my ignorance here. I'll be, I'll be keeping no, asking you no. to clarify things. I just find it absolutely fascinating that uh, there seems to be such significant differences. And, and as you say, the pros and cons for it. Uh, yeah, they're dead interesting. Well, let me ask you a third speed dating question, Robert. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? So I guess it's worth saying that I wasn't initially a teacher. I was a programmer. I made websites as a, a consultant for a living. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. But in 2000, I graduated in 2000. And, and shortly after that, the whole dot-com bust happened where the, the whole, I mean, you went from being able to be like a billionaire programmer to unemployed for over a year. <laughs> wow. And I will say, though, that my skills are extremely rusty. Like, I can't do that now. But I really like, uh, I mean, I have my own business now called Grassroots Workshops. And so I guess what I would do now is really just take my knowledge and experience of education and try to find solutions to make teachers' lives easier. And that's really what I'm doing now. Got it. Fantastic. Well, well, take us through your career then, Robert, from, from where it all started for you to, to where you are today. Yeah, out of college, again, I was a programmer. But when, when things came crashing down, I found myself unemployed for a year just making websites to survive. Uh, I wound up becoming a teacher as a because I was I, I had a friend who needed a chaperone to take the kids to the zoo. <laughs> it sounds like I'm joking, but I was like, I've been unemployed for a year. I could use the time to get out of the house. I'll go to the zoo. And uh, on the on the school bus, the person asked me if I had ever thought about teaching. 
And all I had was a math degree. I had no business being a teacher. I had never taught a class. I'd never taken a student teaching class. Um, but they were in such desperate need that they hired me um, very shortly after. And I started, I, I mean, again, I had no job. So I was like, I need some income. Um, I, I really honestly thought I would quit uh, mid-year when I found a programming job, uh, not really appreciating how awful and messed up that would be. Uh, I So I, I started on March 17th. It was St. Patrick's Day of 2003 and I finished out the year and I was like, oh, I'll try it again. And, uh, you know, 15 years later, I'm still doing it. I, I began as a math and science teacher. I eventually, and, I, and I'm teaching just middle school. I only taught middle school. Um, after my eighth year of teaching, I became what we call a teacher specialist. So it's a teacher whose job is to help other math teachers. And I did that for, uh, I gosh, I mean, until 2015. So I don't know if my numbers are, are perfectly lining up there, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoyed all these aspects of it, That's and so now I'm 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 just doing kind of consulting work and writing uh, wrote a book and kind of really finding ways to support math teachers uh, all over. That's fascinating. That and that that teacher specialist role that you had, Robert, was that within one school or was that kind of across a district? How how did that work? Yeah, so we began actually with a grant, a federal grant um, that, or really a state grant that allowed us to support teachers between third grade and algebra in kind of better and building their own conceptual understanding of the math that they taught. Uh, because I mean, the honest reality is a lot of math teachers are expected to teach math in ways that they weren't taught themselves. Yes. Uh, I was a math major at UCLA and I knew everything about math until I started teaching and realized <laughs> I don't know anything about math. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, um, eventually I didn't, I, I started specializing more in secondary math. So I was helping all, we had four middle schools, two comprehensive high schools, and then one high school for people who needed kind of more support. And uh, I really helped I support them in terms of teaching the mathematics that they taught. That's fascinating. We, we, we had something similar over here. And uh, for me, there was kind of, uh, I can really, really relate to what you say about you only really start to understand maths once, once you try and teach it. And then for me, the kind of second phase of my career, we call it advanced skills teacher over here, where essentially you're part of your salary is paid for by your your what used to be the local education authority and you travel mm -hmm. around maybe one day a week into different schools and support different teachers in in different different areas and that that improved my teaching exponentially because it's only when you start really well I found anyway working with other teachers that you really grow yourself as a teacher because you see different challenges, different ways of doing things and so on. And over in the UK, it doesn't exist anymore, this position. And it, it breaks my heart a little bit. because I don't know if you found the same, Robert, but it's it's so useful, isn't it? Just it's a privilege just watching other teachers and, and learning from them and having discussions about the decisions they make and so on. I, I miss it so much. I don't, I don't know your feelings. Oh, my God. I'm so I totally agree. I think that um, I, I had the realization many times, like I was getting paid to watch amazing teachers teach <laughs> yes. and then figure out like, I mean, let me just say it simply, if you could take the best qualities of all the math teachers out there, you would be the best teacher. And that's essentially what I got to do. I mean, I, I definitely tried to chime in and, and provide uh, assistance where I could, but I really learned so much. And I mean, this, this idea of observe me uh, really came from this idea of like, those were the best moments of my career working with other teachers, learning from them and, and kind of collaborating. And I wanted more of that in education. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And we, we have lots of listeners to this podcast who, who maybe work as mentors for less experienced teachers and, and will watch them and support them. Did, did you learn anything 
um, kind of as an observer to, to get better at that supporting role as, 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 uh, as working with teachers. And the reason I ask is in my early days of doing it, I'd go in and I'd watch a lesson and all the time I'd be thinking, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, I wouldn't do that. Well, I wouldn't do that. And, and the conversations were never as, as fruitful as I liked because I, I always had my biases and, and my, my way of thinking going in there. And I, I, I managed to shift away from that a little bit um, as I got a bit more experience. But I wonder... As somebody who's watched a lot of lessons yourself, and any advice for anybody who's also in a, a position watching and supporting other teachers? Oh, for sure. Um, this one piece of research has fundamentally changed everything about me observing. Uh, and it comes from this guy named John Gottman, who did a lot of research around marriage relationships. And he basically figured out a, a way to predict which marriages would end in divorce and which would continue to last. <laughs> God. And... And you're like, where is this going? But the reality is that uh, when you observe someone, it's more of a relationship than, than people realize. And if you don't have a trusting relationship there and you divorce, you're not going to have that opportunity to really grow with one another. So what he observed was that uh, what was really important was a ratio of kind of critical feedback to or critical kind of interactions to positive interactions. So like if I tell you like your cooking stinks, and then I was like, but you'd look nice today. Like, that's not equal. Like, the, the, the critical feedback weighs so much more heavily. Yes. And so he found that if there were not five positive pieces of feedback for every critical one, the, the, or if there was less than five, that it'd be more likely to end in divorce than not. And I found that uh, the same thing applies to observations. And so when I'm sitting there observing, um, I think that humans have a tendency to focus on all the things that they wish were better yes. and not and take for granted all the things that have gone right because you just expect them now. Like if you don't have all if you're observing a class and all the students are not sitting there with great posture, hands clasped and sitting quietly and you instead see kids working in small groups or productively struggling or explaining themselves well, like those are great things like that we could be thinking about. But we often just think of that as like, well, that's what we're expecting. And instead, I found myself in situations where I had like five things that were critical. Really, if I'm really being honest, maybe 10 things I wish were different. And maybe one thing I wish was, you know, I'd like to give us positive feedback. And I realized like I can never do that. Mm. And so I had to start going through my list and think, okay, of all these things that I want to talk about, like what's the most, the single most important? And then if I find that one, I better damn well find five things that are positive. Like I love that kids are uh, explaining themselves using proper language um, or precise language, or I like that kids are have you know great social norms and supportive of each other, or I like that you know whatever it is. And what you find yourself doing is recalibrating yourself to focus on okay, there's a lot that's good. How do we reinforce that? And then of all the things, like if you give them a list of 15 things that are wrong, there's no way that that person can focus on that. Yes. So what is that one big thing? And if you want to, then you better find 10 things. And, yes. and that's really hard, which finds me back to five to one. So that's my advice to anyone is that uh, pick that one thing and then think of five things. Because what I find is that uh, they're much more receptive when they feel like they've been seen and that people understand the great work they're putting in than when it's just these are all the ways you're not good enough. 
lovely. I love that. Practical, simple, fantastic, superb. Um, what, my favourite question to our to ask guests, and I ask everybody this, Robert, is um, to describe a, a favourite failure. So this may be a lesson that you taught that didn't go to plan. It may be some professional development you were delivering that didn't go according to plan. But what I'm interested in is um, what went wrong, and crucially, what did you learn from the experience? Well, I, I have a very large repository of mistakes <laughs> that I have made. I will. I will pick the one that comes to mind. Um, I will call this the time when I learned that what I was doing was not good enough. And here's kind of where it came from. Uh, we were doing a district-wide professional development, and they needed someone to teach a lesson so that all the other teachers can observe. And I, I wasn't like chomping at the bit to do this. I was still a teacher in the classroom. Um, <clears throat> and... I was kind of voluntold to do it. Like, <laughs> I like that. And it was, it was going to be on subtracting mixed numbers. And I want you to kind of think about this. Like, you know, when you're getting observed, uh, you, you pretend like you're, this is the way you always teach, but you also secretly try to make it like the best lesson you've ever done. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, I was literally having all the district administrators who focused on secondary education and two middle schools of math teachers going to be in my room watching me wow so like i want to just put that kind of like perspective on like i was trying to be like i am amazing watch me etc <laughs> so in united states and in, in at least in, in in california where i live we have freeway signs that have uh mixed numbers as the distance to the exit so oh. like it'll say like the next exit anywhere from like a quarter, a half, three quarters, one, one and a quarter, in increments of a quarter, that many miles away. So like you'll see like the next exit's two and three quarters miles away or something like that. So I had a taken a picture on the freeway of a freeway sign, and I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was something like one freeway exit was a quarter mile away, the next one was one and a half, and the third one was two and three quarters miles away. Yeah. So I came into class asking students how far apart are the two exits that were the farthest away. So my thought being that they would just be doing two and three quarters minus one and a, one and a half. Yes. Now we had done problems like this, like in terms of just fractions, uh, mixed number subtraction, I don't know, many, many times and kids were great at it. And so the lesson begins and the kids are working and um, the kid raised her hand and she, no, actually I remember now it was, it was, um, one freeway exit was one and a half, and one freeway exit was one and a quarter. Okay. Okay. So the correct answer is they're a quarter of a mile apart. Yeah. So the kid raises her hand, and she says that the answer is one third. <laughs> right. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, oh, my God, is this really happening? <laughs> and I ask her why, and she says because one over three is between one over two and one over four. Oh, of course, yes. And I'm yeah. like, oh, God, why of all days today? <laughs> I ask another child um, who raised her hand what the answer is, and she has added them together. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like, I, can I say this in the, to your listeners in the most clear way ever? Sure. If I knew that the lesson was going to do go this way, I would not have picked this lesson. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And what I want to put out there is that I genuinely thought kids would be fine with this lesson, and they really weren't. And it... It sucked that day, let me be clear. But I, I really didn't understand why it had happened. And what I came to realize in the coming days, because I, I actually, I, I asked 
I started doing experiments with children. What I came to realize is that when you just give kids procedural problems, but never an opportunity to actually apply them, it's not like they're going to magically know what to do. Mm-hmm. And as intuitive as it seemed to me, it really wasn't to the children. They didn't have context. They didn't know what the science meant. Now, they didn't drive. I get that. But they also didn't ask me about what the science represented. So the failure at that day helped me realize that I couldn't just keep giving them worksheets of problems and pretending like that was enough. And I really wanted, I, I wound up spending like the next years trying to figure out what the hell went wrong that day. How do I fix it and prevent it from ever happening again? Wow, that's an absolutely fascinating example. So so these were kids for whom if you just gave that without the context, so if you said whatever it was, one and a half subtract, one and a quarter, that would be no problem whatsoever. But, but Actually, was- the, the funny thing is, like the next day, in such shock, I gave them that same damn problem. I actually just wrote on the board, <laughs> one and a half minus one and a fourth, and they all got it right. Wow. And And I really just was like, Robert, everything you think you know is full of it, and you need to figure out what is really going on here. Jeez, that that's fascinating. So again, um, and we can go as, as deep as you want on this. What, what's the solution to that, Robert? I, I know it's not a, a short answer by, by any means, but is it is it to introduce those contextual scenarios early on? Is it to avoid doing the procedural stuff? What 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 would have solved that problem? I have a weird analogy that I've used to kind of process it, and um. I want you to think about what we do to teach people what to do during a fire. Okay. Now, you got basically two options that I've seen. You've got like the hotel method and you got the school method. The hotel method is put a sign on, at least this is what I see in the United States. They, they put a sign on the back of the door that has a map of the floor and tells you which direction to go if there's a fire. Yeah, we've got those as well. Yep, yep. Now, I don't know a damn person who actually reads that map, right? <laughs> and if there's a fire, we're all going to be burnt. Yes. And I get that, but just saying here's what you do isn't really enough to actually know what to do. Mm. And then there's a school version, which is let's try to simulate the situation as close to what you're actually going to experience as possible. Maybe we'll ring the bell. We'll have you line up. Take it seriously. No talking. Walk out to this one safe area. Take attendance. Ring the bell. Go back to class, etc. What we're trying to do is simulate this is what you'll actually experience, or at least as close as we can simulate, so you know not only what you're supposed to do, but what it will feel like. I found, like I was teaching, like the hotel fire drill map, which is just uh, one day, uh, this is what you need to know, and one day you'll have a time to use it. But I never actually gave them that time to use it. And so they had no opportunities to apply what they knew. It was a really fake procedural artificial understanding. And I've just come to realize that we need to give children in mathematics in situations that are as close as we're able to provide to the ways that they'll actually encounter it. That's fascinating, that. That's fascinating. And when you say as close to they'll actually encounter it, are you talking specifically real life stuff or are are we thinking also in terms of high stakes exams that, that they take? Ah, uh, that's a, this will be a big one to unpack. So I, <laughs> Good. I think with high stake exams, we are not testing what's important. We're testing what's easy to test. Oh, interesting. Tell me more. Tell me more. So if you wanted me to test it, like to tell you like, what does this child know? 
like me giving them a standardized assessment is not going to be nearly as helpful as me sitting down with that child for, say, 20 minutes and just talking with the child. Yes. And I don't think there's a, a whole lot of math teachers will disagree with that. But the problem is that that is not a scalable solution. Like we cannot do that every year. And so now we start making these assessments, but it's really hard to grade a lot of assessments. Like if you just had kids, you know, write down their thoughts on different topics, there's just, we don't have the technology yet to score those efficiently to naturally, to natural language processing. Yes. So like there's nobody who thinks, rather, I don't know of anybody who thinks that multiple choices choice problems are like the best way to actually measure true understanding. Mm. They're the best way to ask questions that could be easily graded by computers, you know, quickly. And so we don't ask questions that often get it really good. Like we, 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 the kinds of questions that can bring out the deep understanding are also not the kinds of questions that are easily graded by computers. And so these standard, I'm not a big, I'm not saying that standardized tests are not important or that we shouldn't think about them or discount them. But I am saying that uh, you could have kids who rock standardized assessments and are completely unprepared for real-life mathematics or vice versa. That, I mean, real life is not standardized, and so it's hard to express what you know on a standardized assessment sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating this. Uh, again, just, just for, for clarity here, um, am I right in saying that, that so most of your high-stakes assessments would be multiple choice? Is that right, Robert? So I would say that that's not entirely the, the case these days. Um, so there's a, the most common assessment that is now given in the, in the United States is this one called from Smarter Bounds Assessment Consortium. And they have a variety of questions. Some are uh, multiple choice, but some are like multiple select responses, like where you can select mul- all the answers yes. that are correct. Some are like short response where you can give like uh, sentences uh, some are technology enhanced where you could like draw, like drag uh, a line segment to make uh, an angle that measures 40 degrees. Um, some are performance tasks that are multiple uh, choice. Uh, I'm sorry, multiple responses, including, you know, maybe multiple choice, maybe short response. Um, but we're just not at a point where we have the technology to ask those deep questions that would genuinely measure assessment. So we can, like inevitably, we have false positives and false negatives. Mm-hmm. We have children who seem more prepared than they are and children who seem less prepared than they are. But we don't have a way to kind of corroborate that and correlate it better. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, just just back to your um, favorite failure. I think it's a brilliant example, Robert. And it reminds me of a, a classic mistake I've made. And I wonder if, if, if you can relate to this at all. And, and that is so to take your, your example there. Um, I've, I've certainly made the mistake you've made um, uh, just kind of teaching the, the procedural stuff and then kids being surprised when, out, when it's in some context and not able to, to figure out what's going on. But I've also made another mistake, which is to teach the kind of procedural stuff and then immediately then to introduce that procedural stuff within a context or a problem solving scenario and so on. And the kids are great at it. And I think, oh, fantastic. Not only can they do their basics, they can problem solve with this method, procedure and so on. What a great teacher I am. And then I move on to the next topic and I teach the procedural method and then I get the kids to problem solve and so on and so forth. And I keep doing this, teaching maths in a kind of nice, tidy little boxes, teach the basics, problem solve, teach the basics, problem solve. And mm-hmm. of course, that's all well and good at the time. But then as soon as, you know, a month later or six weeks later or whenever it is, they get a problem in context that isn't directly related to something they've just done that lesson they can't they can't identify what that question's about because 
the way I've been teaching it and the way I've been sequencing it hasn't been getting my kids to think hard about what the question's actually asking, what it's actually about, because it's it's all been taught together in these these nice tidy little boxes. Is is that something you can relate to? And is that an issue that, that you've you've come across? Yeah, actually I, I have thought a lot about that. And I think that sometimes it turns into a game of let's solve the problem using whatever the teacher just taught. Exactly. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. And so the question then is like, well, what do we do differently? Mm. And I actually think that a simple switch of putting the problem first can actually be really helpful. So um, let me think of a good context uh, that maybe would be relatable. Um, okay, so I have a, a problem on my website uh, about uh, a cheeseburger that has 100 layers of meat and 100 layers of cheese. <laughs> nice. And it, it's it's great for functions. It's great for uh, linear equations. It could even work for like some of the younger grades and just thinking about patterns. And what happens is that when I'm, say I'm beginning a unit on functions, um, before I, I don't mention anything about functions. I just show them a picture. And they'll see like a picture of a cheeseburger. And I'll ask them about how many layers of meat and cheese it has. And they'll say it's got one layer of meat and one layer of cheese. Then I'll show them a picture of a double cheeseburger and they'll have two layers of meat and two layers of cheese and one layer of everything else. And then I'll show them what they think is gross, a 20 layer <laughs> hamburger. And they're like, oh, and, and they see like 20 layers of meat and 20 layers of cheese. And they don't know what's coming next because then I show them the hundred by hundred. It's a hundred layers of meat and a hundred layers of cheese. And the, the question that the kids are asking questions and, and the question we often explore is how much does it cost? All right. Well, what, what starts to happen is that how do you even figure that out? And we start going through stages. I have this tool that I use called a problem solving framework. The first step is like, what is the problem even asking? Okay. We want to know how much it costs. And then you got to make an estimate. Now, the important thing about the estimate is you start thinking like, how the hell am I supposed to know what it costs? I don't know this and this and this. And that's a really crucial step because, um, one of the things that we, I call it spies and analysts. The spies are supposed to figure out what we need and the analysts are supposed to figure out what we do with it. A lot of the work that we do in math skips the spy part. It's here's everything you need to know, now compute it. Hmm. But that spy component of figuring out like what do you need is critical. Like I need to know how much a cheeseburger costs. I need to know how much a double cheeseburger costs. I need to know do we have other ingredients. And you start to start thinking about what information is necessary. That engagement helps students start to think about, well, what tools in mathematics can I use to help me figure this out? And they see that math is a tool that they can use to solve their problem. And they're having to think about all the different mathematics I know, what can I use? Now, if you're just beginning the unit on functions, they don't know how to use functions. So they might know how to add, like as it turns out, a layer of meat and cheese is 90 cents. So they could take the cost of a double cheeseburger and add 90 cents to that to make a three layer burger and 90 cents again and 90 cents again. And they might do it, but eventually what happens is they get to a place, and I know you talked with Dan Meyer before, he has one of my favorite metaphors. If math is the aspirin, then what's the headache that made you want it? Yeah, I love that. I love that. So functions is the is the aspirin to the headache of it's freaking annoying to have to <laughs> add 90 cents over and over and over and over again. And so now students realize that there's something that they don't know, that they want to know, and that they'll immediately be able to use. And now you pause the lesson. It's not finished yet. You pause the lesson. Now you talk about procedures. Kids realize, oh, this would help with that burger problem. And they can now come back to do it. And I found that this way of kids seeing that it's sort of like the matrix where you can just plug in, like you realize I need to know how to do this and you plug it in and now you're ready to fight. Um, 
when they see that the math is the aspirin for their headache and that it's not just another random thing that they're learning for some abstract time in the future when maybe it'll come in handy, I found that to be much more beneficial. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I love the, the the aspirin headache setup. And um, would you would you say, Robert, that you, that's something that you can apply to the majority of, of mathematical concepts and ideas, or is it kind of a, a select few that this way of introducing it, almost kind of providing the purpose by showing giving students a taste of what life is like without the thing that you're about to teach them? Is, is that something that's quite widespread in its application in your experience? Uh, it's easier in some areas than others. So let me tell yes. you where, let me, let's say it's easy everywhere except, um, okay. here are some exceptions. Uh, it's really hard for me to do it in say geometry with proofs. Like there's not really any real life context for that. Yes. Um, it's really hard with say adding, multiplying any operations with polynomials. Like I ain't never seen anyone <laughs> do that in real life ever. If you've got a context for that, you're lying. Um, <laughs> On the other end, it's kind of sometimes it can be hard in kindergarten to like find authentic context. Um, I mean, I guess you could just be counting objects, but I would say that uh, if you can, uh, the idea of oh, you know, if you're an engineer, you'll use this is is wholly unsatisfying. Yes. And so rather than this abstract time, like finding that topic is useful. I will say, like I personally, I don't think I under like. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's this website, graphingstories.com, which oh, is a yes. collaboration, right? Um, there's this one, it's a collaboration between Dan Meyer and BuzzMath. And there's this one video of a man on a merry-go-round kind of going in circles. And he's getting closer and farther and closer and farther. And when I first saw that video, it blew my mind because I had never realized that sine and cosine waves actually exist in real life. And I thought they were just an abstract thing. And so you know, if you want to, rather than just teach this formula and now solve a problem, if you just ask, where will this person be after this much time? It's like, oh, oh. and so you, I, I would say that the areas that I don't know how to apply it to, the honest reality is probably I don't understand that math well enough to even understand where it's applied. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, let, let me just delve a little bit deeper on this, Robert. And believe me, listeners absolutely love going deep into kind of lesson planning and, and thinking through things like that. So sure. I am I'm a big fan of whenever I'm introducing an idea, coming up with whether it's some kind of visual hook or whether it's some kind of way of getting across to students that there is a purpose to what we're about to do. Um, and I, I'm a big fan, as I've said, of the, the headache aspirin um, approach for that. Um, can I just ask on a practical level, um, how long, and I know it's an impossible question to, to answer, but just in general, how long would that part of the lesson typically last for before you then got into the formal way of teaching that method or procedure? Is this kind of a short, sharp 30 seconds, two minutes, or is it kind of an exploratory 5, 10, 15 minutes? What, what, what typically does that look like, this initial stage before you get into the, the teaching, for want of a better expression? So I'm not going to give a particularly satisfying answer to this, but let me explain <laughs> sure. why. It, it takes as long as it's going to take. So let me let me explain what I mean. Um, let's imagine you're teaching uh, two. So go back to that uh, that hamburger lesson. Sure. Let's imagine you've got one class that uh, maybe they're ahead of where I, 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 I'm trying to not say the words like high class and low class. Sure, let's say sure. that there's one class that's craving more challenge and it is farther ahead than another group. When they get that problem, maybe they have ways that they realize they can multiply. Maybe they don't know functions, but they realize they can multiply and uh, get that the hamburger happens to be $90.85. So then the, the problem 
where we go from there is, so they don't have a headache that they were able to answer their own headache with their own aspirin. Another class might struggle and you're talking about the hamburger and they know, they have this idea that there's going to be more layers, but they have no idea how to figure that. That might take three or four or five minutes and then you stop there. So the, the question, the, the, the real answer is when they get to the point where they realize that there's mathematics that they need to know, but don't know and want to know, that's when you stop. And each group could be a little bit different depending on who's in the group. But I have found that uh, Julie Dixon uses these two terms, just in case scaffolding and just in time scaffolding. I was a just in case scaffolder, which was, let me teach you every single thing you might need for this lesson because it's going to make my life much easier if I don't have to stop in the middle of it. And the, the lesson became a game of just use whatever Mr. Kaplinsky was showing us. Yes. Just in time scaffolding is the, what I really aspire for now. Again, this is from Julie Dixon. And, and she basically posits that rather than telling them just in case, let them get to that point where they're like, oh, I don't remember how to add integers. And then you're like, you've got this perfect opportunity because they want to know how to do it. You can show them how to do it. And then you can immediately measure whether they actually know how to do it because they're able to solve their problem. So that's what I aspire for. But every group is going to be a little bit different. So it's hard. Wow. This is this is fascinating, this, Robert. Um, because that it almost goes counter to, to well, if I'm interpreting this right, it almost goes counter to something that that, that I believe in quite a lot and i'm interested in your take in this so if, if i'm if i'm about to um teach an, a new mathematical idea or a new concept or, or a new method or whatever label we want to, to give on it um one thing i'll do beforehand is i'll i'll list all the essentially for, for want of a better phrase prerequisite knowledge that kids need in order to best give them the chance of understanding this new new idea that i want to teach them so to, so to, to give an example um, if we were doing, let, let's take the um, mixed number fractions thing that we spoke about uh, before, mm -hmm. um, I would be making sure that students could perhaps convert between mixed number and uh, improper fractions. I'd make sure that students knew how to perhaps simplify fractions. I'd make sure that students could, and um, their, their kind of number bonds were fairly secure, so maybe do a bit of a multiplication warm up and so on. And my, my, my logic for doing that would be, well, let, let's check all this prerequisite knowledge in isolation from the new idea so that if problems occur, we can deal with them in isolation. And then when we then put all this stuff together for this new idea, this new concept, students' attention can be on how all this stuff that's familiar to them fits together so they can focus on that as opposed to, as you say, running this risk that there are actually gaps in their knowledge and we have to try and plug those gaps whilst at the same time trying to introduce this, this new idea, this new method, this new concept. Now, that, that I'm quite happy with that as a model, but I'm always interested in, in alternate views. Is that, is that different from, from, from your approach? Am I getting that right, that that would be a difference between us here? So let me be clear. I, when I was in the classroom, I taught exactly like you're talking about. It wasn't until after I left that I had more perspective. It's, it's, it's much easier to think about what could be when you're not in the classroom. Sure. And so that th this is how I taught after I left. But let me, let me share a metaphor that actually, or, or a story that actually comes from Toyota and their manufacturing process that I think is, uh, perhaps initially counterintuitive, but applicable here. Okay. So if I was, say a, a car manufacturer, I would try to have every single component that I could possibly need and thousands and thousands of them so that I have 
never a chance of having to stop production because I've got everything I need always. Yes. That's not at all how Toyota does it. Toyota tries to have the least amount so that there's almost no backup. And their philosophy is this. If we're doing things just right, we should have right what we need right when we need it. And if for some reason there's like not enough tires, then that is a sign that there's a problem in our process. Like Because you don't want to have too much or too little. You want to have everything you need just in time. But when you have a big surplus, you have a really hard time seeing like spotting issues in your processes. And so having just enough helps you see the root issues that are normally hidden. Like, for example, you could be really, really bad at budgeting, but if you got a million dollars a day coming in, no one will ever know because you just have so much coming in. And I think the same thing happens in education. Like, if kids are not, like, when we just teach them something right before the lesson, they'll sometimes hold on to it just enough to get through the lesson. But if they don't really deeply understand it, we're actually going to sweep that under the rug and not really see it. And so by teaching it to them right when they need it, rather by not teaching it at all as in terms of pre-teaching, we have a much better idea of where kids are really at and what our previous efforts, how effective they've really been. Uh, So I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's convenient. I'm not saying it makes the lesson go smoothly. But you get a much better, more accurate understanding of where kids are really at and what help they really need. That's interesting. Yes, I'll 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 mull that over and some more of it. We may we may we may revisit that actually. Um, in terms of something that I want to speak to you about now, because um, I can only observe what's going in the U.S. Um, from from afar, and my way of doing that is is Twitter, and I follow <laughs> I, fo- I follow you, I follow Dan, and uh, we have Michael Pershing um on the show. I'm a, a big fan fan of his, so I, fo- I follow a, a fair few of the of the kind of well known. Um, U.S. Ed- educational um, pe- people involved in, in education, but um, again, it's very difficult, very very different from you being being on the ground yourself. So, I just wanted to talk about a couple of differences, maybe in in kind of teachers' priorities and, and interests and, and and the kind of debates that are going on um, over in the U.S. So. In the UK, um, particularly over the last five years, there's been this quite a general increase, I would say, in in, in research, in, in cognitive science, in um, memory, um, in starting to think about how students learn things, how they forget things and how we can, can stop that happening. I just wonder what is, is that something that, that you observe yourself in, in the US? Has there been any change that you've noticed over these last kind of five years, seven years in terms of what, what teachers are talking about and their interest? Has there been a, a general um, increase in, in engagement in terms of research or, or, or not? So obviously it's kind of hard to generalize for all teachers. Sure. Um, do you mean like, say, the nudge unit and like Richard Thaler's research in terms so- of cognitive biases? Ah, so this is fascinating. So yeah, this is interesting. We had we had a bit of an email exchange on this, didn't we? And and I didn't want to say too much about what I meant for uh, by it because I wanted to discuss this um, on on the podcast. Um, no, I I don't mean that. And I'd be but I'd be very interested um, in in you telling me a bit more about that in a second. Um, what I mean is what what's quite popular. Um, again, and I I don't want to generalise here. But there's lots of interest in, in Robert Bjork's work on desirable difficulties. So things like spaced practice and interleaved practice and also the importance of low stakes quizzing to, to make sure that students are constantly revisiting material that they've learned in the past so they, so they don't forget it. There's also been um, quite a big, big increase in, in, in John Sweller's cognitive load theory. So 
thinking about the limits of working memory and how how perhaps learning equates to a change in long-term memory and things that we as teachers may do that actually mean that students' attention isn't on the mathematical idea, it's it's spread around and thinking about different things. Is is that something that's kind of caught on in the US or is that or 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 or, or, or as you've mentioned there, is it is it other issues that, that teachers seem more interested in? To be perfectly honest, this is not something I have focused much on, so I'm not really sure in terms of how big of a trend that is in, among U.S. math teachers. So uh, I, I have been interested in, in cognitive biases, but I have not really uh, – I don't really have a, a, a meaningful answer to your question. No, no, no problem at all. As I say, it's just I'm I'm always interested in in the differences, and it's again, it's just fascinating for me to to because we're so sim similar in lots of ways that the two countries and maths obviously is 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 well according to many people a universal language, and it's just it fascinates me that there's different ways of approaching it and 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 views on learning it. Can you just tell me a little bit about cognitive biases, Robert? Where, where would you have come across those in terms of um, in terms of education and maths teaching? What what, what influence would they have? So I, I'm really, really, really into cognitive biases, um, you know, from Richard Daler's work. I know that he does the, or he kind of led uh, the whole nudge unit in the UK mm. uh, in terms of like just the inspiration of that and um, uh, Kahneman and Traversky's uh, work. I, I would say in, in terms of education, uh, I see it a lot. Uh, let's start with status quo bias that a lot of times we, like we have the same math centers essentially that we've had since like the 1800s. And at the same time, the kind of things that we actually need to be proficient people in life are not the same. Like, I guess the question I have is, should we be teaching the same standards in 100 years? Mm -hmm. I would like to believe that, uh, it's funny how emotional people get about this, but <laughs> I mean, at a minimum, I don't expect that we'll be having the same coins in 100 years. Uh, I don't know if we need to teach those standards. I think that there's a lot of standards that we teach because that's the way we've always taught math. It's not at all about, like, if we were to blow up mathematics and reinvent it now, I don't think we'd have the same standards, but we have them now because that's the way we've always done it. Uh, you've also got uh, something called pluralistic ignorance, where usually the group is smarter than the smartest person of the group, but where you might see this uh, pluralistic ignorance, like an example of that would be like, say, you see an accident on the freeway, you assume that everyone else is going to call, and because everyone assumes everyone else is going to call, no one calls. And that person <laughs> is stranded. Yes, yes. Um, you see this in education where, like, I don't understand why, uh, where the formula for the area of um, a trapezoid comes from. And I think I'm the only person who feels dumb and doesn't know how to do this. And so I say nothing. And yes. so what I don't realize is that everybody doesn't know that. And because no one says anything, no one actually – and maybe one person knows it because no one says anything. That's not something that gets talked about. And I could just go on this list, but there's a lot of things that uh, we do, not because that's the best way to do it, because we have these biases that hinder our ability to make choices. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of uh, Thaler's work and also, yeah, Carnivan and Traversky. That's interesting, but I've, I've never thought to apply it to, to, to that scenario. That, that's very interesting, Robert. Um, last question on this before we, we start to do a bit of a deep dive on, on problem solving and, and depth of knowledge. Um, I'm, I'm interested for, from looking at your website and, and following you on Twitter. I know you do a lot of, lot of talks, a lot of keynotes at, at, at education conferences over in the U.S., um, what would be what would be the kind of focus of those conferences? What are, what are some of the and I know it's very hard to generalize. What are some of the 
the, the general themes that the, the, the sessions and workshops that people who speak at these conferences focus in on? Is it does it tend to be problem solving? Does it tend to be real life? Does it tend to be stuff from from cognitive science? What what, what if you were to generalize, Robert? What what are some of the, the kind of key themes that the the, the main influencers are talking about at, at U.S. education conferences? Oh gosh, I mean. I mean, there'll be hundreds of sessions at conferences sometimes, so it's really hard to generalize it. Um, I'll say in elementary education, you see a lot of cognitively guided instruction as uh, being really prominent. Um, I love that research. Um, I'm not as experienced as many. I'm, I'm not. I've only had basic exp, uh, basic training in that. Well, but, what do you mean? What do you mean by that, Robert? Cognitively guided um, instruction. So cognitively guided instruction is research that comes out of uh, Wisconsin. And the basic idea is that rather than our jobs being let's teach this topic and then this next topic and this next topic, mm -hmm. that students learn in a progression. And that if we can understand where the person is at, the child is at in their, their understanding, and we know what kinds of ways of solving problem come next, we can give them kind of situations to help them move there. Like, let me give an example. When kids are learning how to count, they'll begin by uh, direct modeling. They'll actually draw. Like if you say, um, if you have five cookies and you get six more cookies, how many cookies do you have? And they might actually draw 11 cookies. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they might do count all where they would actually count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. Yes. And then they'll start counting on. They'll count from one of them. And they'll do like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. And then they'll get to counting from the larger ones. So it'll be like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Well, sometimes you'll see, rather than just teaching the next strategy, if you know that a kid is always counting uh, from the first number regardless, and so like five plus six, they start counting at five, you can then say, I know the next thing that they should be doing is counting from the larger number. So if you give them a situation like one plus 99, yes. you know, that's going to be a pretty painful problem if you start with one, two, three, four. And kids are like, well, I could start with 99. So I, I, I do not claim to be an expert in it, but there's a lot of research that basically defines these pathways, gives you different problem types, and allows you to build the kind of learning that the kid needs next from what they already know because it goes along kind of a, a, a research path. And is this te is technology coming into play here? Is this kind of uh, like adaptive learning platforms, personalized learning, or is this is this teacher led? I have not seen any sort of adaptive learning platform, so I could imagine that could be a thing. But uh, really, this uh, from what I've seen, it's just teachers really, really understanding where each of their children is at, what strategies they're using, and thinking about how do I build more learning upon the learning that they already have fascinating and then that's that's elementary so what would some of the kind of middle school and high school what would some of be what would be the, the kind of key themes that are being spoken about at the conferences with regard to that again and i know it's impossible to generalize but yeah you just pick, pick a few out i mean i, I think one important thing that's, that people are, are paying much more attention to is social justice and equity um when you look at uh i mean a lot of times i mean i naively thought like math was neutral um <laughs> yes but i mean even I think it's neutral when you happen to be in the group that's the majority, right? As a white male educator, like I wasn't really noticing who was not included. Yes. And so there have been a lot of different uh, sessions and readings that have really helped me develop a more balanced perspective of like where of the inequities that we have. Um, I would say that there are a lot of sessions on real world problem solving. Uh, there's a lot of sessions on uh, really just practical stuff like uh, 
how to get kids to solve word problems. Uh, I, those are not my favorite sessions because I'm not a big fan of word problems, but uh, there are sessions on note-taking. There are sessions on specific things like how to teach calculus or how to teach statistics. There are sessions on developing content knowledge, uh, on note-taking. I mean, there, it's really what I, I would say that people share what they think, I guess, what they wish that they had known. Yes. And that gets shared. I don't think there's necessarily that much. I mean, to some degree, there's gatekeeping in the sense that the people reviewing the submissions are deciding which ones are accepted or not. But really, there's a, a wide variety of different topics um, all over the spectrum. Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh, okay, Robert. Well, I, I want to talk, and this, this is kind of the one of the main reasons I wanted wanted you on the show for a long time now to to talk about problem solving. Um, so let, let's start off with a with a, with a big question, and God knows where this is going to take us, but let's let's just chuck it out there. Um, can you teach students to problem solve just like you could teach them, let's say, to add two fractions together? So I guess it really kind of depends on what does teaching even mean. Um, like, <laughs> nice. I don't mean to get like so meta, but like, let me just tell you an honest <laughs> reality here. Um, I taught seventh grade for the longest time and kids would start learning how to add fractions in like third grade yes. and then they would do it more in fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade. And then in seventh grade, I would teach them how to add fractions the same way, right? If it's got, you get a common denominator, add the numerator, et cetera. Now here's the question that I never wanted to answer to myself, but I always knew what the hell was I expecting was going to magically happen in seventh grade if they were taught the same thing in third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and they didn't understand it. Like now they'd be like, oh, well now he's saying it. It makes perfect sense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I knew that and just didn't really want to address it. I just, it's my, in my standards, I got them to pass my test. And I guess what I want to kind of just think about is like, what does teach mean? Is teaching like teaching to pass a test or is teaching teaching so that they actually understand why it works, right? Because I was an amazing teacher if what you're talking about is teaching kids how to robotically solve questions on a standardized assessment. Like, I was freaking good at that. Like, I was really good. <laughs> but I also found that those same students were a house of cards where they knew what to do to get an answer right but didn't understand any of why it worked. So I don't think teaching problem solving is like teaching kids how to add fractions if we're talking about adding fractions is just follow these steps in your notes, right? I I have this metaphor, uh, not this metaphor, there's a thought experiment from a guy named John Shirley called the Chinese Room. Uh, and I have found it to be absolutely enlightening. So let me share it with you. Um, now, it's, it's called Chinese Room, but it could really be any foreign language. So imagine that there's a man inside of a room. Uh, the doors are shut. Uh, there are no windows you cannot see in. The man inside the room does not speak Chinese, not one word. But the man is given a book. And in the book are lots of Chinese characters that say, if you get this symbol, give this symbol in return. All right, so he has that book. Okay. He also has a box. And in the box are characters with cards that are written with Chinese characters on it. So he could pick one up and, and, and use it to slide it back to someone if needed. Now, a woman walks up to the room, and she's a native a speaker. She speaks Chinese fluently. So she writes a message. She slides it under the door to the man in the Chinese room. He picks up the message. He looks at the character. He finds the character in the book. 
He finds which character he has to slide back in return, picks it out of the box, and slides it back to the woman. Now, I want you to think about each person's perspective. From the perspective of the woman, she wrote a note that said, do you speak Chinese? And she got a, a reply back that says, yes, fluently. So from her perspective, the man inside the room speaks Chinese fluently. Yes. But, but if you ask the man inside the Chinese room, does he think he speaks Chinese fluently? He would say no. And when I heard this, I realized, oh, crap. I'm the man inside the Chinese room, except for Matt. <laughs> My teacher would hand me this thing called a problem. I would look it up in this thing called my notes. I would then follow the steps in my notes and hand this thing back to the teacher called the answer. And I want you to think about each person's perspective. From the teacher's perspective, she gave me a problem. I worked on it. I gave her back an answer, and the answer was right. Do I understand what she's teaching me? Yeah, of course. From my perspective, did I understand what she was teaching me? Hell no. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, think about factoring trinomials. I was damn good at figuring out which two numbers add to be this and multiply to be that. <laughs> I didn't have a damn clue what a, what a trinomial was, what a quadratic was, what each of those numbers represent. I knew nothing. I was just good at finding those numbers. I was the man inside the Chinese room. And that's the thing I'm afraid of is that we can teach kids how to answer questions so that they will successfully get them right, but they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And I think that we have to focus a lot on are the questions we are asking students ones that kids inside the Chinese room could answer. It's fa fascinating. Um, there's there's been a long running debate on this show, Robert, um, uh, and there's been some quite heated heated uh, exchanges between either me and the guest or between two guests about this this notion of what we call it kind of the how and the why. So here's how to do a problem, or here's how to carry out a method, and versus why are you doing it? Why does this actually work? And um, for, for many years, well, for many, many years, this is my 15th year of being involved in teaching. I'd say for about the first 10 years, my view was always that the why should come first. So to take some of your examples there, I wouldn't dream of teaching a child how to factorize a trinomial or factorize a quadratic without first going into why this process that we're about to, to, to learn, why it works. So we'd, we'd go for the, essentially the, the understanding first and then would come the method and procedure. But the more I, th the more I think about this and the more people I speak to, I think there's, the, there is a decent argument for certain classes, certain students and for certain mathematical ideas where it's quite sensible to, to simply show students how to do something so to say to them, look, let's not worry about why this works just yet. Let me show you how to do it. Let's get really good at this. Let's build this foundation, this bedrock of success. And then next lesson or whenever it is, I'm going to come to you and say, you know, this thing that you're really good at. Here's why it works. As opposed to let me try and show you why something works that you've never seen before. You've got no buy into. And actually the why is going to get quite complicated. In my experience, you can lose quite a few kids along that journey of the why so that when they get to the how, they've given up already. It's just another area of maths that they don't understand. Now, I'm not saying that that's true for all kids, and I'm certainly not saying it's true for all mathematical ideas. But I think there's a decent argument for sometimes showing kids how to do something first and dealing with the why later, I think, can be quite sensible. But not everybody agrees with me. And what's your take, Robert? Uh, I'm going to sideswipe your question here. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't care deeply about whether... It's the chicken or the egg first. What okay, I really care yes. about is that 
we don't just teach how to do it with never teaching why. And yes. if I'm being really honest, that's basically how I taught for years. Um, I don't think it's so important which one comes first mm-hmm. as much as just at some point they understand why it works. And I'm not saying it has to be for every single thing, yes. but like there's so much mathematics. Like, uh, you know, I can multiply, I bring down a zero, but I wasn't really bringing down a zero, right? Or I could subtract and I was borrowing a one, but I wasn't really borrowing a one. It was like a 10 or a hundred. And I didn't really understand why what I did worked. Um, you know, if you've got these formulas for a surface area, I fundamentally, I graduated from college with a degree in math, from UCLA with a degree in math. And I, I did, I totally had no idea that surface area was just add all the sides up. So you have these formulas. I didn't know where they came from. I thought like some magical math fairy bestowed it on them. So uh, this may not be satisfying in terms of furthering your debate, but I will say that I really care that somewhere both exist. I don't necessarily feel strongly about which one comes first. Got it. Fantastic. Very sensible answer, Robert. Um, Well, next, I want to talk about the the depth of knowledge framework. Now, I think this is this is one of the best things I've I've seen. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And and listeners will have had a bit of a teaser of this. Emma McRae was on on our show recently, who's the author of Making Every Math Lesson Count. And she cites a lot of your work, particularly um, the depth of knowledge framework in her excellent book. Um, And she knew that you were coming on. So she kind of just teased a little bit. and We didn't talk too much about it um, now I know this is one of those things um, and it's often difficult in an audio format to describe something visual and so on but I wonder if you could just talk us through the depth of knowledge framework and, and if possible Robert just give us an example of it yeah Emma's great so I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that she was talking about it and using her book uh, so let me take you through uh, a comparison between two problems on the same topic so can think about your traditional comparing fractions problem. It probably looks something like this. Uh, you have one fraction on the left, one fraction on the right, a circle in the middle, and you have to put less than, greater than, or equal to in the middle. Yes. Right? Maybe it's one half, one of them's three fourths, and you got to figure out which one. And, and I, I, I can imagine that if you had like a worksheet of 60 problems like that, and the kids got them all right, you'd be like, all right, this kid knows how to uh, determine which fraction's bigger. And maybe you'd make it like two digit numbers, like 12 fifteenths over, you know, 12 over 12 fifteenths compared to, you know, 29 75ths. Now let me share another problem that comes from a guy named Peter Morris, and it's on the Open Middle website. Uh, and I'll try to describe it to you. Sure. So imagine a fraction where on, in the numerator it has two boxes uh, side by side, and in the denominator it has two boxes side by side. And now you can place a digit in each box, one through nine, in the boxes. So let's say you put one, two in the numerator and three, four in the denominator. Yes. You now have the fraction 12 over 34. So you're only going to use four of the numbers from one to nine, and you can't repeat a digit. You can't put more than one number in a box. You're going to make a two-digit numerator over two-digit denominator. The question I have is, how can you make a fraction that's as close to one as possible? So like, let's say we start with one, two over three, four. We have 12 over 34. That's not horrible, but that's not that close to one. I think we can do better, right? So maybe we do like, I don't know, 45 over uh, 62. Is that closer to one, (laughs) right? And now you start thinking, like, if I just randomly pick four digits every time, like, 
this is probably going to take a long time. And even if you've got a good one, how do you know it's the best one? And then you start thinking, like, how do I know which digits to put where? And what you start to find is – so here are what are things that are interesting about this particular problem. It has a closed beginning. Every single person starts with the same and uh, same problem. Mm-hmm. It also has a closed ending. It's not an open-ended problem. It's a closed-ended problem. There's exactly one right answer. What's open about it is the middle. There are many ways to approach it. Some people might start thinking, oh, I want to have my numerator and my denominator be as close together as possible. So they might do like 29 over 31 or 39 over 41. And that's great. Some people might think, wait, I need a big denominator, a, a denominator with a greater value so that I can have smaller pieces. And they might do something like uh, 6, 7 over 8, 9 or six seven, maybe 76 over 98. And the conversations that come between how all these people took different paths to get the same answer leads to some amazing conversations. And I think you can also imagine children who could knock the socks off of a worksheet of 60 problems like the first kind I showed you, but would be obliterated by this problem. Yes. And it makes you have to wonder, how deep is their understanding of comparing fractions if they can only do the first problem and not the second one? And so a man named Norman Webb out of the University of Wisconsin uh, coined this term depth of knowledge. And simply put, all he was trying to say was that uh, sometimes a, an assessment will have a problem that's technically on that standard, but it's not really measuring it as deep as the standard intended. So it doesn't have the right depth of knowledge. And so he started to then try to articulate what those depth of knowledge levels are. And I'm not so concerned about uh, like this has to be, this is depth of knowledge level one, and this is two and three and four, but he did define four levels. And I have found a lot of amazing conversations come out of that second and third level. And so the problem that you described there, Robert, where, where would that fit in? Would that be, would that be kind of three or th- level three, level four? And what, yeah, what, let me, let me, that's level three. Let me, I'll just okay. make one up on the fly to show you what sure. level two would look like. Yeah, fantastic. So yeah. what's that? Oh, no, sorry. I was just saying, I'm putting you under pressure here. So this oh, is, this no, is a good, I, good effort. If you can make one up like this, this is fantastic, Robert. No, 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 it's great. It's actually, what you'll find is it's really easy to go from two to three if you have one or the other. So let's okay. go back to that same one. Uh, uh, blank, blank over blank, blank. So make one fraction that's less than a half and then do it again and have one fraction that's more than a half. I see. All right. So like, again, if you're picking random numbers, that's going to take you a while. But if you understand that this idea of a ratio that the numerator has to be uh, less, uh, rather the denominator has to be more than double the numerator for it to be less than one and less than double for it to be more than one. It's not so bad. I'll pick, let's say one, two and nine, eight to be less than one. And I could pick, uh, I don't know, uh, five, six over seven, eight to be more than uh, one half. Right. I think I said one, but so what you find now is that, it's more challenging than the first one, but still fairly accessible. You could probably imagine, still probably imagine kids who can uh, rock that first worksheet, but still struggle. And you start to realize that they don't understand how choosing the numerators and the denominators affect its value. Yes. Because what you need to realize is if you have conceptual understanding of fractions, this is a really easy problem. And if you don't, if you have procedural understanding, this is going to take a long time. Like there's no, like 
when you have one half and compared to three fourths, like you can look in your notes, find a common denominator, and you're good to go. But when you have no digits already chosen for you, and you've got to pick them all every single time, like that can be overwhelming. And so I've I've found that these kinds of problems we call them open middle problems. They have they give you almost like X-ray vision where you can see hidden student misconceptions and then address them while you still have time. And I love using them. That's fascinating. So would um, is it possible to give us an example of, of level four? Does it would it go that far for, for this particular kind of ordering ordering fractions? So level four tends to be uh, like some sort of mathematical modeling where you're applying it to some sort of real world situations. Uh I don't necessarily have one off the top of my head mm. that would be good for this topic. Uh, but I would say, like, for example, the, the In-N-Out burger problem yes. would definitely be closer to level four in the sense that you have to figure out what do you know, what do you need to know, um, and then try to figure out, create a model to represent that information. What okay. I would say in general is I am less concerned about, like, you need to use depth of knowledge level two and depth of knowledge level three or you're not good. What I really am concerned about is this. Let's not just use depth and knowledge level one. Yes. Yes. Like, well, I was the king of using those. I use <laughs> all the time. Our textbooks have them. I get it. But you can have some really false positive information about what your kids know because if you're just giving worksheets like that and not these other ones, they may not understand it as deeply as you anticipate that they do. That's fa- fascinating. So, so let's dive into the practicalities then of this, Robert. Is is it a case that you would, if you're using one of this depth of knowledge framework in the classroom, and let, let's take the example of, of ordering fractions, I think it's, it's, it's a great one. Is it a case that students essentially need to qualify to do depth of knowledge two by showing that they've got a certain number of depth of knowledge one questions, right? Or can you jump straight to level three or level two? How, how does it work in your experience on a practical level? On a practical level, it's really hard to do, we call them DOK just for short. So it's yeah. really hard to do DOK2 if you can't do DOK1. Yes. And uh, you might be able to do DOK3 if you can do DOK1, but not do, like if you, you could possibly skip, but you need to kind of have that rudimentary understanding before you can do DOK2 or 3. That has been my experience. Where I want to call myself out in terms of what I'm embarrassed about that I did is that once a child can demonstrate that she can solve like, I don't know, three, four, five uh, DOK1 problems. I, I challenge us to, to answer the question of what additional benefit does she get from the 54 other problems that we make them yes, do? Yes. Um, I did it that way. Let's go back to cognitive biases. I did it that way because that's the way I was taught math and I assume that's the way I had to teach math. What I realize now is that like, that single DOK3 about finding the one that's closest to one, like you could do more work on that one problem than a whole worksheet, you know, trying yes. to think about like how to make it work. So that one problem gives you the same kind of independent practice, the same kind of think time, but it incentivizes building conceptual understanding because if you have conceptual understanding, the problem is so much easier. And so I feel like it scales to what kids have needs for. And and again, just just to go real practical on this, w- would it be the case that you, would the decision be in the hands of the child or, or the teacher when they've had enough practice of DOK one and are ready to move up up the levels, if that makes sense? Who who makes that decision? Uh, in general, I would have the teacher make the decision. Like I'd have the teacher maybe initially introduce the the four problems or five problems and and kind of have the once basically once the teacher has determined that kids have a 
a decent enough understanding of how to solve these DOK1 problems, whether it's one problem or 15 problems, it's time to move on to something more challenging, like DOK2. Um, you can have the students do it. Like I've done something where it was like a choice. Like you could choose whatever problems that you wanted to do. Like uh, we called an extensions menu. A DOK1 problem was worth one point. A DOK2 was worth, I think, two points. And DOK3 was worth six points. And you had to earn something like 12 points. And you could pick whatever problems that you wanted. Uh, that is great in terms of choice. It's much harder to have conversations though because people are working on the same problem it's also harder when kids are all over the place so there are benefits to many ways of doing it but in general i like to have kids working on the same problem at the same time so you can have these better uh, conversations about what kids are working on got it got it and i asked you before when we were talking about the the headache aspirin approach and how how widely applicable it was um same question really for for depth of knowledge robert um is this framework something that you can use do you think for the majority of mathematical ideas and and methods or is this does it work better for some areas of maths than others you know it's actually a really great question I i don't know if everyone's ever asked me that in the same conversation as the real world but what i'm noticing is that in some ways it struggles in the same places. Like it's really hard to do this for proofs. Uh, it's it's actually not so hard to do with say polynomials, but um, I'd say that the places that we've struggled the most in terms of making these have been kindergarten because they have access to say less numbers. Like they may not use one through nine or other numbers. Uh, I we we've struggled to make them for statistics. And if I'm really being honest. I've never taken a statistics class in my entire life. Like I didn't need to graduate from uh, college to take a I didn't need to take a statistics class to graduate from college. So I don't know that as well as I should. So I have not made any for that. Um, but I would say that for the vast majority of the math that we teach, uh, you can find an, a ready-made problem from uh, on OpenMiddle.com for what you teach. Uh, you might have to like adjust because it's slightly different grade level if you're in the UK or a slightly different topic, but you should be able to find something that meets your needs. That, that's fascinating. So um, if we've got teachers listening who want to get into and start using the depth of knowledge framework, um, where's the best place to go, Robert? Is, is it open middle that we're going to talk about um, in more detail in a second? Or is there is there somewhere else where, because I've seen you post grids where you can essentially see this progression through. You can have this example of a, a DOK1, a DOK2, and a DOK3. Um, and I think that's super useful for teachers to see the progression. Well, where's the best place to go to, to look for examples of that? Yeah, so I think if you go and search on Google for Kaplinsky DOK matrix, um, I'm actually searching for that right now to double check. Yeah, if you go to if you search on Google for Kaplinsky, which is K-A-P-L-I-N-S-K-Y, and then DOK matrix, what you'll find is uh, are a series of matrices. So I've got one that will show you really across the grade level. It's great for these like kind of all grade level trainings. I've got one that's just elementary math, um, so basically up until they're about 10 years old. Uh, Then I've got one that's just for secondary math, which is what we would say from like sixth grade through calculus. Then I've got uh, ones that are just specific grade levels from third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, all the way through uh, high school math. So it's just problems for that grade level. And what I have is, if you enjoyed how I showed you what a problem looked like, at DOK1 as compared to DOK2 as compared to DOK3. I've got that, but for lots of different topics. So you can see what that would look like for multiple topics at your grade level. And it really helps you kind of just see like, oh my God, this is what it could be. You'll also find, if I'm being really honest, I have made problems where I'm like, 
I don't know how to freaking answer the same problem. Like, <laughs> and what does that mean about my own understanding of this math? And it's, it's, I'm going to be honest, it's humbling. Like you feel like you don't actually understand the math as well as you thought you did, which is, uh, I think it's, it, it's a hard emotion to deal with, but it's, it, it's really what I realize is it's something I needed to push me to kind of deeply understand what it was because I thought I already did understand it until this problem came to me. Fascinating. And we'll, we'll put a link to those in the show notes as well for, for listeners as well. So they can, they can find those matrix matrices uh, straight away. Cause I think they're absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, well, let's talk open middle now um, in particular. So, is, is open middle the way I uh, the way I see this, Robin? Correct me if I'm wrong. This is something that is obviously a key part of the depth of knowledge framework, but it's also something that can kind of sits a bit separate to this. You, you can go on to openmiddle.com and find the topic that you're teaching and just find some some fascinating problems for it. Is is that right? It's it's something in its own right. So let me let me kind of talk about how depth of knowledge and open middle are connected. Yeah, fantastic. The issue is that depth of knowledge is not a winnable topic. And here's what I mean. Someone can easily go and post their depth of knowledge posters on Pinterest or on Teachers Pay Teachers. And now people wonder, is that what depth of knowledge is? Is this what depth of knowledge is? And if you search depth of knowledge and math, you're going to find like 15 different takes. Like you'll have people that say that you have to use these verbs. And now that's what depth of knowledge one and two and three and four are. And I don't want to invest any more energy in trying to coordinate what people think is depth of knowledge. Um, to the degree that I'm even calling instead of depth of knowledge level one, two, and three, sometimes I just call it level one, level two, and level three. What is important for you to know, dear listener, is that if you like those open middle problems, if you like the DOK2 and the DOK3 problem, that is all you'll find in open middle. Open middle are all those level two and level three problems that you just heard that you would love. Um, there are uh, hundreds of problems. I'd say I think there's like five or six hundred problems on the website now. And so we have none of the level one problems. You can find those. Just Google uh, the topic you want and worksheet PDF, and you can find as many as you like online. Yes. But if you want the meaty problems that are going to really help you see the gaps in your students' understanding and have these. I mean, I didn't even mention this. Here's a challenge for all of you. If you're on Twitter, go to the hashtag YOpenMiddle. So W-H-Y-O-P-E-N-M-I-D-D-L-E. What you will find are me sharing tweets from people who say things like, the thinking that my children did today was something I'd never seen before. They did not want to stop. Um, they loved it. They begged uh, for more. They didn't want to go to recess. Like, when the hell does that happen in math class? And these are teachers, whether they're second grade or middle school or high school or calculus, it is consistent. And so these problems are on open middle. And we've talked about the, the beginning and the middle and the end. And it's that open middle that leads to the best conversation. So you'll find the DOK2 and the DOK3 problems on open middle. Fantastic. And again, if it's possible and it's no problem, if it's not, is, is there another example you could give us of, of an open middle problem just to just to hook teachers in who perhaps not use this? Maybe a favorite of yours or one yeah. that's worked particularly well? Let, let's actually go through um, one on, on areas of rectangle. Uh, I'm oh, sorry, nice. area and perimeter rectangle. So Cause I was, was going was to ask whether it's, it's suitable to geometry topics. So that'll work perfectly. Yeah, fantastic. So let's start with the, the, the traditional DOK one. Uh, what is the perimeter of a, trect, uh, a rectangle? That's a new word. What's the perimeter of a rectangle that has uh, a measure of uh, 
10 by 2. Okay. So I don't yep. think you'll be shocked to know that kids will do like 10 plus 2 plus 10 plus 2, and they'll get that. Yeah. So that's DOK1 level 1. You will not find that on open middle. Right. Here's level 2. What are the dimensions of a rectangle that has a perimeter of 24 units? Now, what's really interesting is I actually have videos of children answering these two questions in progression and the third one that's about to come on my website. Um, we can put a link in the show notes. Yes. But I've had kids who, when they answer this question, they'll say that they'll draw a rectangle and they'll put one side has a length of 24 units. And then I'll ask them, what's the other side length? He says 24. And I'll ask them, what about the other sides? And they'll say they're less, they're 18 units. Now, this is the kid who literally seconds before said that a 10 by 2 rectangle had a perimeter of 24 units and then couldn't use that as an example for the next question. Wow. But what you find is that, I mean, there's technically, if you don't, if you include fractional side lengths, there's an infinite number of rectangles that have mm. a perimeter of 24 units. At the very least, if you just use whole numbers, you could do 10 by 2 or 11 by 1, or you could do a lot of options. But you start to see the gaps of kids who can solve one but can't solve the other. And then level three would look, and again, this is level two and three are on open middle, would be uh, what's the greatest possible area you can make from a rectangle with a perimeter of, let's say, uh, 36 units. Yes. And so uh, what winds up happening is they'll start thinking like, uh, what do I even do? Like, how do I even make a rectangle that has a perimeter of 36 units? And then you'll often see something like uh, kids who will, I mean, I'm sorry, what's the greatest possible? Yeah, so 36 units, whatever the number, it doesn't matter the mm. number. But you'll find kids that they don't, they'll, they'll just try to make really long sides, not yes. realizing that they're actually going to decrease the area. And that the more it gets closer to a square, the, the larger the area increases. And so you just get to these like really profound conversations and noticings and wonderings. And you start to see gaps in kids' understanding. And you have like, here's something that will never happen to you if you use these problems. You will never have kids say, I'm bored or my kid should be in the next grade level. Because when parents are asking for that, what they're really saying is, my kid doesn't feel challenged in your class. And what I have found is I can obliterate children with some of these problems. Like I can, <laughs> I can obliterate adults with third grade problems or fourth grade problems. And I can obliterate myself with those problems. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I'm not saying I'm immune to it, but what I'm saying is that we, going back to these cognitive biases, we think that the only thing that exists in math are these superficial level one questions. And so we think that if we've done all the level one questions, well, it's time for the next course. But the reality is we can go deeper with grade level content and challenge kids to you know, spot these gaps in their misunderstanding so that you can see kids who can add up all the sides but don't really understand what perimeter is. Absolutely fascinating, Robert. Um, it, I'm no doubt whatsoever we'll have teachers listening here who'll be, who'll be desperate to, to give one of these open middle problems a go. Um, what, what advice would you have? What, what have you learned from years of doing these yourself and also observing teachers? What, I guess, what are some of the kind of do's and don'ts if you want to have, if, if you want these problems to have the greatest impact on students? So um, I, I'll actually plug my book here. Uh, I have a, I wrote a book called Open Middle Math Problems That Unlock Student Thinking. And in chapter three, I, the, the very beginning is how do you prepare to use these problems? Nice. What I'll say is 
Uh, the, the shortest version I could say is start with a really easy problem far below their grade level. So let me give you a problem right now that I think is my favorite candidate to use if you teach anything above, let's say, nine or 10-year-olds. Even okay. nine-year-olds, I think, would be fine. So I'm going to try to paint a picture in your mind. Imagine three three-digit numbers, except they're boxes. So it's a three-digit, a three-box number plus another three-box number plus another three-box number. Okay. So you're adding three three-digit numbers that are represented by boxes. Yes. Now you can use the numbers one through nine. I want you to make a sum that's as close to a thousand as possible. No. And I can only use each digit once, can I? Yes. Now, nice. here's what I want you to realize. I'm pretty sure that every child that you would give this to would know how to add three-digit numbers. Yes. I'm also fairly sure that I don't care if you have a PhD from Oxford, you're not getting this right on the first try. <laughs> yes. And it doesn't mean you're bad at math. It means like, all right, like, okay, so you probably, if you have conceptual understanding, you probably realize you don't want to put like your nine, eight, and seven in the in the hundreds place. Um, and you start thinking like, what kind of numbers should I put there? And then you get something kind of close-ish to a thousand. And then you're like, oh crap, how do I switch numbers or switch digits so that I don't go even farther from it? Yes. And what happens is, is that, Kids will start to see mistakes. I mean, Joel Boulder is amazing, right? And so she's done a lot of research around growth mindset. And a lot of times people think if you don't get it right on the first try, you should just quit because you're not a math person. You should give up. But the reality is you start to realize like, yeah, everyone freaking gets it wrong probably three or four times. And that's totally normal that this is accessible, but just challenging enough to feel like worth pursuing that uh, you can have kids fighting each other. Like someone will say that I got... Uh, 1200. Someone will be like, no, I got 1150. And then, you know, unless you get a thousand, then the, the, the mean question I love to ask children is, how do you know you can't get any closer? And it's like, ah, oh, you know, even if you, if you've got like 999, you're like, <laughs> well, how do you know you can't get closer? Yes. And, and so what I like about this is that kids start to understand that they get that idea of that there are digits you can place that you won't get on the first try and doesn't mean you're dumb, that, it's something you can do. That's something that you will need multiple tries. And then when you later come back and apply to something that's more relevant to your, what you teach, they feel more optimistic that this is something that they can do. So I would definitely, definitely start off with something that's within their wheelhouse. That's fascinating. And again, this is an obvious thing, but I think it's a point worth making. Of course, the strength of open middle versus, let's say, an inquiry or an investigation or something like that. Is, is the fact that the ending is is the same for all kids in the sense that there is there is a right answer at the end of this, which, again, can sometimes be seen as a negative, but it's a positive in the sense that you can bring the whole class together. You can talk about the problem they've all been working on and you can get to a solution. There is that payoff. Whereas, again, I'm sure we've all experienced students working on more open ended tasks where it's fantastic, but it's very hard for a teacher first to to identify any mistakes or misconceptions because kids are all pursuing their own lines of inquiry. And also it's very hard to bring the lesson together because one child's been off doing something. Another child's been off doing something mm -hmm. else. Whereas open middle, you don't have those issues. W would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the only thing I probably misrepresented is that sometimes there are problems that have more than one right answer. Sure. Uh, and what I can say for sure is that every problem is closed beginning, so you all start the same way. Every problem has an open middle, meaning that you can do multiple strategies to get the right answer. 
but sometimes there will be more than one correct answer. Um, and I think that really, though, when you can find the problem with the closed ending, you'll find that some of the best, con- like, so the, my personal take for the Bible of how to facilitate a problem solving lesson is Peg Smith and Mary Kay Stein's five practices for orchestrating mathematical discussions. Until I read that, I had no idea how bad I was. And <laughs> what I just, how many missed, I, I thought that the problem was done when the kids got the answer. I did not realize that that was like at best the middle. And that the beauty was all the conversations and reflections about the different ways that you could solve it. And it's a lot easier to have those conversations when it's everyone's got the same answer and now they can reflect on how the various strategies are connected to one another. Yes, fascinating. And and again, Robert, you, you mentioned your book briefly there. Um, just give it give it an even bigger plug, Robert. Tell us the title and um, t- tell us because I, I was been reading up on your book. You say it's not it's it's both for novices like teachers who who are less experienced with open middle and also teachers who've been using it for, for, for using that approach for many years. So just just tell us a little bit more about your book and, and where teachers can find it. Yeah, I mean, let me start by saying this. I have never met a math teacher who said, I wish this book was longer. So I wrote, <laughs> I wrote the shortest possible book I could possibly write because I, I only, anything that was fluff, I try to cut out because I wanted to make it something that really valued your time. Yes. Uh, I, I begin by talking about like what open middle problems are, how you prepare to use the problem, how you even select the problem, uh, how do you prepare for the, the, the lesson and the conversation, how you, lead the conversation, what happens when things don't go the way you plan, because that's always the case, uh, how you make a problem and, and what comes next. Uh, like you mentioned, I really tried to write it for everyone so that even if you've never seen it, you knew what to do. But if you've been using them for years, you had the kind of pro tips that really helped you get to the next level that you wanted to get to. I wrote it conversationally. So it's really every single section in the book is basically a question. And so if you want to, you know, once you read it, you can easily just uh, skim it. Like, I guess you could think of it like this. I didn't write it like, say, a novel where you have to read it from beginning to end. Mm. Uh, it would read that way, but I also wrote it like a cookbook so that when you're ready for the specific recipe, you can find it quickly so you can keep coming back to it as a reference. Um, and really, it's it says grade 6 through 12, but the strategies, are, as you can see from the examples I've used, are applicable K-12. Uh, really, I just found it too challenging to write examples for every single grade level in one book so you could easily just take uh some of these examples from elementary math and then read that and just kind of reflect to on your own examples at the same time fantastic superb um the, the final kind of big area i just want to want to talk to you about robert is is professional development or, or cpd as, as we'd, we'd call it over here now i'm on your i'm on your email list and i i, I love your emails i love you always hook me in with you with these subject lines it's, it's kind of cl- it's clickbait in the best sense of the word <laughs> so you, you do really good on those and i love i love the ones about kind of examples from from your own teaching and problem solving but I, i'm particularly interested these days because i do a lot of um, teaching teacher training myself i'm very interested in in your take on on professional development so um just to, just tell me robert just just to get into this um what do you think makes good professional development in, in mathematics what are some of the key features wow okay this could be another whole uh, podcast episode um <laughs> it ties a lot to what we've been talking about together i think again status quo bias is heavy I think that we do professional development the way we're doing it now because that's the way we've always done it. But if we really, really think about it, 
it oftentimes doesn't meet our needs well. Like, let me give you some examples. Uh, let's say you go to a conference, and it's a great conference. First off, you have to leave your classroom, so you're away from your children. That's days that you're having to do subplans and days that they don't get uh, the learning that you want. And the best case scenario, you're spending uh, lots and lots of money, um, even if it's a local conference, you know, between hotel and travel, whatnot. Mm. Uh, in the best case scenario, there are amazing speakers and every single session you go to is amazing. But we've all had situations where it's like more misses and hits and you're like, why did I even come? Yes. Uh, in the best case scenario, you learn so much that you can immediately implement what you learned when you get back. But we all realize that, like, how much are you going to learn in 60 minutes so that you're prepared to go? Um, you know, maybe another option is that you have someone come to your school. And, and that can be great. Like, you have a whole day with a person. But how often do you get to choose who you learn from or what you get to learn on? And so we've just kind of come to think that this is just the way it has to be. And so... I mean, I, I was fed up with this, and I started a company called Grassroots Workshops where I really wanted educators to be able to choose who they learn from, when they learn, so they could be able to learn from wherever they want and, and however they want. Like, for example, our workshops are six weeks long, so that instead of having to, like, just learn it all in 60 minutes, you can learn some and then implement it in your classroom and then come back for more. And, I mean, I can start telling you, like, what I think are some big questions I've been trying to solve, find answers to with professional development, if you'd like, that I think are really just big problematic questions that we're not thinking about. Oh, you, you can't leave us with a hook like that and not tell us more. Yeah, go and give us some of these big questions. Right All right. Now. So let, let's actually go back to what I was talking about with, in, in my writing my book. My first question for you is this. Should, because I, I think that one day we're going to look back on online professional development and wonder, like, how was it not always online? In the same way that like, uh, I imagine most people uh, don't have encyclopedias in their house. Like that, that was something that when we grew up as a child, we thought we'd always have. But now yes. you have Wikipedia. Somewhere along, you know, the idea of having an encyclopedia on your computer was weird when we were children. But now it's weird to have the books. I think in the same way, we're in that transition between in-person PD is the only way to do it. And then one day we'll be like, why did we only do it in person? So uh, because, I mean... I just so I guess what I'll say is this: the first question I have is, should online professional development be more like a novel or a cookbook? Like I heard recently that, so in general, completion rates for online workshops are nowhere near a hundred percent. They're sometimes near fifty percent. And so the question that we often ask then is like, how do we increase completion rates? And one thing I've heard that blew my mind was that only 20% of people who sign up for an online workshop actually intend to complete it. Wow. And I was like, how is that freaking possible? Like, <laughs> why would you sign up for this? It's, it, it has to be 100%. Like, how is that possible? And I thought and I sat and I sat and thought about it. And I was like, oh, and that's where that analogy came from. What if we've been assuming people want online workshops that are like novels when they want cookbooks, yes. right? What if it's not that they... We're measuring it the wrong way. What if it's not about how do we get people to complete it, but rather how do we get people to find what they need as quickly and as efficiently as possible? And so that's one feature, I think, of, of good professional development is that it's not that the only way that you will feel like it's a success is by you completing everything, but that you can find what you need when you need it. The, the next question I've been thinking about is, like, consider another thing that's shifted. 
we grew up in an age of TV, which was we watched what they showed us when they showed it to us. And now we live in an age of Netflix where you can watch what you want in the whatever quantity or dosage you would like. And the way this kind of factors into online learning is traditionally you see a dripping method where uh, you have module one on week one and module two on week two and module three on week three and so on. But what about binge watching? And people might want to like, I mean, we, you, I'm sure you can imagine a teacher who's like, uh, I have a lot of time right now and then I'm going to get really busy. So I don't know why you're not letting me see all this content right now. Right. And what was really interesting is that I have been surveying people who take our workshops and grassroots workshops about whether they would like it to be binge watching so they could choose that flexibility or dripped. Now, if you think about it, the only logical choice is binge watching. And here's what I mean. When you have complete control, you could totally watch it one episode per week or yes. you could watch it all now. So, in a completely rational situation, the only logical option is binge watching. You want to know what the real answer is? It's it's bimodal. About 60% want to binge watching and 40% specifically preferred dripping. And they told me things like that they have anxiety and when it feels like there's an overwhelming amount of stuff, they're even less likely to do it. Or they yes. like it to be kind of moderated so that they feel like it's accessible. And I want you to think about what this implies. 40% of people requested having less control over their own learning. <laughs> yes. And wow. that was really, really counterintuitive to me. And I mean, what, what I'm trying to, I mean, I can pause here if you want to kind of tell me some things, but like the, I, I'm very passionate about this as it might come across. And I'm just really trying to figure out what are the things that we believe to be true with no evidence? And what are the things that people really, really want? Um, I got some more too, but I mean, these are the things I'm trying to focus on. That is, is absolutely fascinating that, that on a, on a number of, a number of levels. I, I love the, um, kind of whether you call it psychology aspect, or I guess it comes back to what we're talking about with, with the nudges that what the behavior we expect from, from people. And in fact, the behavior they expect themselves isn't, isn't the behavior that they, they display. And again, I've, I've never made this link through to, um, to, to thinking about in terms of professional development. And just to paint you the picture of what happens um, in the UK, we, we obviously don't have that, um, as big an issue with the, with the travel aspect, um, yeah. for want of a better phrase. So often it would be more kind of, you'd be out for a day course and you could, you could leave in the morning and you'd be back at home, you know, for, for four or 4 PM in the afternoon or, or whatever. But we still have the cost implications, both in terms of monetary, um, in, in terms of kind of paying for somebody to cover your classes and um, supply teachers and so on, substitute teachers, but also the cost of leaving your class, you know, you know, in the hands of someone else who, uh, who doesn't know your class as well as you do and it's inevitably there's might be behavior issues and all that kind of thing and you've got to then trying to pick up the pieces and figure out where they've gone up to so there's been a definite movement um in the uk um over the last few years and, and budgetary constraints have, have driven this as much as anything else to have professional development in teachers own time but it tends to be kind of on a saturday over here so we'll have um a national maths comp that uh, a, a guy called mark mccourt runs who's been on the show a, a couple of times 
and we'll also which again is teachers give up their own time to attend the, the cost is very low maybe 20 pounds 30 pounds but it's teachers giving up their saturday all the presenters do it for free um it's you know you can submit a workshop and so on and so forth and it's it's a brilliant kind of community um, event but it's been driven by by teachers because their, their needs weren't being met for, for for cpd as i said mainly because of a budgetary reason schools are less likely to, to let teachers out these days and then you'll also have things like teach meets where after school teachers will give up their own time maybe like let's say an hour an hour and a half a month and teachers will get together and take turns to present an idea for five minutes ten minutes and so on but as far as i'm aware we haven't we haven't made the shift over here to these online cpd uh, providers or, or, or courses but I, I, again I, I, I don't know why um, I, I don't know why. I, I, I don't know whether it's because there's either a lack of quality or I suspect it's what you say Robert that it's just we've, we've never we've always done CPD face to face so it, it's a bit of a shift to try and break break away from that idea and, and do it online um, what's been I guess my question is well what's been the either the, the take up or the other response uh, as I uh, have, have you found it difficult to, to shift people? And is it a case that once they get a taste of this, that they, they, they never want to go back to, to the face-to-face thing? Or is, is it not quite that simple? So it's not my intention to say that one day um, online professional development will completely replace in-person. I think there's a place for both. Mm. But I think that people, you know, it reminds me of the iPad. If we can, If you can mentally go back, listener, into your mind before the iPad, you did not crave an iPad. Yes, that's you just, right. You yes. didn't crave it. Like it, you had a laptop or you had a, a computer. There was nothing in the middle. Oh, you had a phone. Yeah, there was nothing in between there that you were like, I need something in between there. And once the iPad came out, you're like, okay, I got to have this. Like everyone has a tablet now and you can't imagine not. And I think that people will start to see that this fills a need that they did not realize that they wanted to have. Like you must have people that you I mean, the way I want you to think of it is almost like a concert. There are probably some bands or musicians that you really love that you would love to see perform. And the reality is, unless they're happening, you know, unless they happen to do an international tour, if they're a United States band or whatnot, or, mm. you know, vice versa, if they're a UK band and they're coming here, you're never going to see them. And you have no access to that person. And in some way, having online workshop workshops democratizes professional development that it lets you learn from the people that you like. Uh, there's a website called Masterclass, um, which you can learn like uh, Steve Martin teaches comedy or uh, Martha Stewart teaches cooking or Serena William teaches tennis. And it's like the person. What if wow. we had that for education? What if you had like Joe Bowler teaches growth mindset or, you know, uh, Dill William teaches assessment, right? If you had the person teaching it, you'd be like, that's fantastic. I think that over time these this idea will become more common and people will be like i mean why would i go anywhere else like i don't want to take like joe blow teaches this i want to take like the person teaches that topic yes. that's fast fascinating this and and what do you find robert i know it's potentially kind of fairly early days in this but is it does it tend to be individual teachers signing up paying for themselves or is it schools who pay for teachers or groups of teachers to do it how does the kind of finance of this work it, so okay so financing works like this that's an easier question to answer um <laughs> about 66 percent of teachers self-report uh, for whatever self-reported it is worth that they self-report that it's being paid by uh some sort of 
funding that's not themselves, their school, right. a grant, something like that. And about a third are paying for themselves. I would say we've had a lot of people internationally taking our workshop. And I want you to think about that because initially it sounds strange, like how would they know? And then you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Like people from Dubai or Qatar or um, Taiwan or South Africa or Argentina or Mexico or Japan. If you So these are often people at international schools. So if you teach at like the American School of Dubai, uh, there's not a whole lot of people coming out your way for professional development. There's not a whole lot of conferences out there that are English speaking. So your choices are basically nothing or an online workshop. Uh, there are a lot of people who they're the only ones. Like, here's the honest reality. Uh, and oftentimes, we believe in the quality model of professional development, not an equity model of professional development. And what I mean is we want to give all teachers the same training, not give teachers the training that they want. And so you'll have one person come in and everyone gets that one person training. Mm -hmm. But if you really ask people, what do you want? They might each have a different thing that they would like to pursue to increase their professional growth. And in with in-person professional development, you just cannot give that. I mean, here's the crazy reality. We tell teachers differentiate for your students, but we never differentiate for teachers. Mm -hmm. And so, that's because it's really freaking hard to do with in-person training. So this is like have your cake and eat it too. You can get this deep learning and you can get it with whatever kind of cake you want to eat. And so, yeah, we find individual teachers take it. We've had like groups of as high as like almost 100 teachers from one school take it. Wow. Uh, we've had, uh, I think, about 30 countries and almost every state in the United States has taken it. So it's really kind of all over the place. We've had uh, people will do it like a hybrid model. If you think of like a book is to book study as online workshop is to like a hybrid model. So they'll take the workshop, uh, they'll, they'll watch the lessons on their own and then talk about it in person. We've had people just do it uh, by themselves and then they can talk with people on the message boards. We've had uh, really all the conceivable scenarios play out uh, online so far. Absolutely fascinating. And my last question on this in particular, Robert, is do you, I guess one of the uh, one of the elements that I, I think would be missing for, from an online versus a face to face is that interaction in the sense that mm. if, if I'm given a talk or I'm watching a talk and there's there's something that needs clarifying then I can I can ask the person or I can there'll be a Q&A or whatever at the end and also of course there's that that kind of discussion that happens with with the participants that are there whether they're sat on a table working on a task and I know of course you, you can replicate that but I'm picturing teachers doing the, one of the big advantages of course is that teachers can do the online thing in their own time when it fits in with them not necessarily when it fits in with the rest of their department and so on and are, are there ways of getting around that that, that you can still get that interaction with either the presenter and, and fellow delegates or is, is that just kind of the price we have to pay for the other benefits no actually i i think like i am not going to say that it's exactly equivalent to in-person uh training like that would be a lie but i think that so each workshop has a message board and i've now run this for three years and i don't believe in three years i've missed one question um i'm it's not the kind of workshop where you take it and you never hear from the professor again or the, the instructor again. Uh, where 
answering all the questions so that it's like the person was right there. And, and to be honest, you probably get more attention than you would with in-person because if everyone has questions, you can't really stop the person mm. doing the training. Um, we also have a, a one hour live question and answer session. That's usually in the final week of the workshop so that if you've had any questions that you didn't get answered, you can kind of get them uh, asked in person and live. Um, so that's the only thing that's synchronous. Uh, that's at a, you have to be in front of your computer at a specific time. But all the questions can be pre-submitted and it's recorded anyway, so you can watch it later. So we've really tried to balance it. Like, uh, I mean, one other thing I think is kind of worth considering just as in terms of just how different this is, is usually it feels like a training can go broad or it can go deep, right? Like you either can talk about a lot of things superficially or you can go deep on a few things. But like, I just want to blow the mind of, in terms of thinking about what's possible with online workshops is that you can go broad and deep. Like, for example, you can go deep into it, but because of the, the, the nature of an online workshop, you can have examples of what this looks like in an elementary classroom, in a middle school classroom, in a high school mm -hmm. classroom. And so you, it's almost like a choose your own adventure path. You choose to view the examples that look like what you want to see or all of them. And so you don't have to choose either one. You can have them both. And so really, I think that it's, it's a whole new way of looking at this. I, I hope one day we look back and wonder how was it not always this way? fascinating and again we'll put links to this in the show notes but if you just want to tell listeners now where, where can they go to find out more about your online course robert yeah so it's called grassrootsworkshops.com so they're both plural grassroots with an s and workshops with an s uh and there are already workshops from people that maybe you've heard of um, i have an online workshop there pam harris does uh sue looney tisha richmond uh graham fletcher uh andrew Sidel, uh Chris Lesniak, um, and really I think that you, Sh Shannon Keebler, I think that you'll find that there are a lot of people that you know, like, and trust and would love to learn from, and this is your opportunity to do so. Fascinating. Fantastic. Well, um, to, to, to bring this conversation to a close, just before I hand over to you for your, for your big three, Robert, just, just a couple of reflections. So um, I wonder if there's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about uh, over the years. When I first started teaching, I legitimately thought that if I could just teach the same grade level long enough, like I'd be set. Like I would have all my standards <laughs> down. I have my lessons down. I would be set. And I, I have come to realize how naive this is, uh, through a metaphor that I heard actually in this, how I built this podcast, uh, by the founder of Sam Adams. And he talks about the difference between scary and dangerous because I used to think those were the same thing. And so uh, an example of something that's scary but not dangerous is, say, rappelling down a mountain. If you've got the proper equipment, uh, it's strong enough to hold up a car. So it's scary, but it's safe. It's not dangerous. Uh, conversely, if you're walking on a snowy mountain on a very hot day, it's beautiful. It's not scary at all, but it's dangerous because that's the kind of conditions that can lead to an avalanche. Mm. So when I thought I could teach the same grade level, it wasn't scary at all. It was wonderful. <laughs> but it was naively dangerous for me to think that the way I was teaching would be a satisfactory way to teach these children for the rest of my career. And what I've come to realize is that trying these new techniques, yeah, it's scary to try an open middle problem. You don't know how it's going to go. But is it dangerous? Like, is it really going to hurt children and make them understand math less? And so that's the way I rationalize it. Uh, I 
changed my mind on the idea that we can just teach the same way um, because it was scary to change my mind, but I realized it's not dangerous and now I'm okay with it a little more. Fascinating. Uh, brilliant. And um, great answer that. Now, your answer to this question may well be the same. and There's no problem there. But I wonder if there's anything, Robert, you wish you'd known when you first started out in teaching that you know now. So I kind of mentioned this earlier, but when I graduated from college with a bachelor's of math, I really genuinely thought I knew everything I needed to know about math. And I wish I knew how common it was that no one freaking knows anything. And that <laughs> this doesn't mean you're dumb or that you're bad. And that, if anything, it helps you better empathize with what students are. That teaching is a lot more like, uh, say, law or medicine. When people say that I'm practicing law or I'm practicing medicine, it's because they're constantly trying to learn to get better. I really thought, had a fixed mindset view of teaching that you knew everything you needed to know. I mean, like, it's math. Math doesn't change, right? That's what I thought. I wish I had known that math is something that evolves and that I'm not a bad person and no one is a bad person for realizing that uh, you will need to grow for the rest of your career. Fantastic. Brilliant answers. Well, let me hand over to you, Robert, for, for your big three. So the, uh, what three websites, blog posts, or whatever you want to uh, interpret this as, uh, would you recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to these in the big three section in the show notes. Yeah, I, I think we've actually talked about all of them. So let me rehash them. I, I would say if you take nothing from this, but one, uh, I would check out openmiddle.com, O-P-E-N-M-I-D-D-L-E.com. On the homepage, it's got a link to uh, our, we the, the whole open middle team try to pick the favorite problem from each grade level. So if you want a problem to start with, check that out. It's got hints. It's got uh, why we like it. It's got answers. And it's a great place to start. Uh, my website is robertkaplinski.com, K-A-P-L-I-N-S-K-Y. And I've got uh, lots of blog posts. I've got lots of real world lessons that you can immediately use in your classroom. And finally, if you are on board with the idea that we should rethink professional development, I encourage you to check out grassroots workshops. Again, grassroots and workshops are both plural. And you'll see that there are a lot of workshops that you would love. And, and to be perfectly honest, I'm looking for people who would love to present in these workshops. So if you're interested, uh, you can reach out to me at Robert at Grassroots Workshops, and I would love to talk to you about that as well. Fantastic. Well, um, as I said, Robert, I've been wanting to get you on the show for, for ages. You're, you're one of our most requested guests, and I'm really pleased it's fitting now, particularly after the Emma McRae episode um, a couple of months ago. It's kind of wet the appetite, and this has been everything I hoped it will be and more. It's been fascinating to speak to you, um, and I know there'll be lots of teachers who perhaps have, have heard of Open Middle, but haven't used it for a while. And also lots of teachers who perhaps haven't haven't heard of it and will be looking forward to, to, to checking it out. So yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I've certainly learned loads and I've got plenty to reflect on in, in the takeaway section um, at the end of the show. So Robert, thank you so much for your time and hope hopefully we get to see you over in the UK and uh, see you present in person at some point. It'd be fascinating to, to hear more from you. So Robert Kaplinski, thanks so much. Thank you very much. So there you have it. 
it. There was my interview with US maths, or should I say math, educationalist Robert Kaplinsky. What a great guy Robert was. I absolutely loved talking to him. What, what a great voice. And I'll tell you what I also like. I love his use of analogies. He always had a really nice way of, of, of conveying the meaning of what he was saying. Um, often using an example outside of the world of education. And um, that that's kind of the first thing I just wanted to reflect upon on this, on this takeaway. Um, the power of communication and, and the use of stories and the use of reframing explanations in a different way just, just really brought to life what Robert was trying to say. So I, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. How clear was, was the recording as well? I'll tell you, I said to Robert just before we started rolling, um, it's, it's flipping annoying that I'll, I'll speak to somebody, so I'm, I'm based up in, in, in Lancashire, I'll speak to somebody in like Manchester or Birmingham and it'll be crackly as anything. I speak to somebody um, in the US, it's flipping crystal clear. But anyway, right, so... There are three main things I wanted to reflect upon um, in this takeaway section. Um, the first is, the big question really for me is, I absolutely love the open middle problems. I absolutely love them. I have for many, many, many years, and I, I really like the depth of knowledge um, framework, and I'll put links to, links to the page where you can access those, examples of those in the show notes. But I guess the big question is, where does the, where do those problems and activities fit in for me into my philosophy of teaching and, and crucially my sequence and structuring of, of activities and instructions for students. Now this sounds like a ridiculous plug um, but those of you who've uh, purchased and, and maybe read my, my latest book Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain will know I've got a diagram in there that is my diagram, my illustration of a learning episode to, to use Mark McCourt's term and I'll put the diagram in, in, in the show notes so you can visualise it. But this, this diagram is, is there for me to illustrate how I sequence the things that I do with my kids. So it starts with an introduction to, to the topic, and it was fascinating to hear uh, Robert's views on the introduction, this, this notion of providing a purpose, this um, giving students the, the headache before you provide them the aspirin. And we've talked about that um, in the, on the podcast before, and I, I mentioned that in my How I Wish I Taught Maths book. And then I move on to this process of atomization. Now, that was fascinating. Uh, we, we dug into that a little bit in the conversation with Robert, how maybe we disagree a little bit with this. Uh, for me, atomization is a key part of the process. I want to identify this prerequisite knowledge. I want to assess it in isolation. And then I want to introduce the new idea that, that requires the found, that foundational knowledge to be in place. But I take Robert's point that um, you, you can't cover everything. You, you can't assess everything. And there's going to be some surprises along the way. And I like this notion of this just-in-time support. Um, but I still think there's a definite role for identifying that key bit of prerequisite knowledge and just sorting that out beforehand before it gets tangled up in the weeds of, the, of, of these, the new idea that we're trying to teach to our students. And for me, that's why atomization, and again, I bang on about this in, in my book, why atomization normally consists of maybe four or five key atoms, key bits of, of knowledge that if students are lacking in that, it's going to make the, the understanding of the new idea that much harder. So I'm, I'm, sti I'm sticking with that. I'm sticking with atomization. And then I move on to my example problem pair and uh, fluency practice and intelligent practice. Um, and then I start to get onto problem solving. For me, that feels like the right time. Once students have... Um, hopefully uh, have that prerequisite knowledge sorted out. Then they've been introduced and modelled this new idea. Then they've had a chance to practice it. And that practice, it may be, to use Robert's terminology, it may um, be depth of knowledge one initially to give them a bit of fluency practice. But then I, I start to move into intelligent practice where it's still, there's no context going on. There's nothing fancy going on, but there are relationships between questions for students to attend to, think deeply about, think mathematically about. 
But once we've done that, um, we then get into the problem solving uh, part of the learning episode where we have method selection. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a second. But what we also have is purposeful practice. And again, I talk about purposeful practice in, in how I wish I taught maths. This notion of, of practicing basics. So you're still practicing that, that key skill. You're not going off on loads of tangents, doing loads of different things. You're still practicing that key idea, but you're doing it in a way where you have an opportunity to think deeper. You have an opportunity to be a bit more creative. The reins are off a little bit. And for me, purposeful practice, as I talk about in How I Wish I Taught Maths, that is that is the kind of umbrella for which I think open middle and, and the depth of knowledge framework um, sits underneath. I think there are wonderful examples from uh, of that, just like the ones Robert discussed on perimeter and on ordering fractions, because students have that opportunity to, to really work on the skill or the idea that they've been taught but at a much deeper level. And, and Robert used the phrase uh, conceptual understanding. It's not enough just to be able to be a method following robot, just churning out the same thing over and over again. You've got to think a bit deeper, think a bit strategically, think a bit more about what, what the whole idea is really, really about. So that for me is where it fits in. Um, if you've seen my, my model of a learning episode, once you get to purposeful practice, that's when I use the open middle uh, problems. Um, in the exact same way, I use something like Colin Foster's mathematical etudes. For me, they're, they're two, two of the same thing. This notion of practice, but practice being just that little bit more. The reins are off a little bit. Students have a chance to come up with their own examples, be a bit more creative and so on. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about is this notion of method, uh, method selection. Um, I talk about in my book how my two biggest mistakes as a teacher, firstly, were differentiating too early in the learning episode, making assumptions that kids needed different things too early on. I think that was an error. Um, and the second biggest mistake I made was, was not realizing the importance of method selection. I would teach kids the basics, then give them problems, sol problems to solve involving the basics. Everything that they've been taught at that lesson was useful to them when solving the problem. So it wasn't problem solving. It was just applying this method. And it, they didn't, students didn't have to think hard about what they needed to do, why they were doing it, and so on and so forth. So what I need to know now is, do students know when to use the techniques that they've been taught? And that's, that's where method selection really comes into play. So in my model of a learning episode, I'll have method selection straight after intelligent practice. So for example, if my kids have been taught, let's say we're doing a, a unit on ratio, and there's loads of different sharing in a ratio style problems. You've got your standard share 30 suites in the ratio two to three, but you've also got your twisty ones where uh, that two people are sharing suites in the ratio two to three. One has six more suites than the other. How many suites do they have in total and so on and so forth. I can teach my students how to answer each of those questions, those types of questions, but then do they know how to identify which type is which and how to select the correct way of doing it? So that's where I, I talk about method selection there and I, I use intelligent practice for that as I bang on, about, bang on about in my book. But also, I want kids to be able to select different methods from, from different units, different mathematical ideas. And that's where I use my, my SSDD problems, similar surface, different deep problems, where students are presented with four problems which on the surface look very, very, very similar to each other. Maybe they've got a, an image in common, a context in common, some words in common, an amount in common. And students have to think, okay, these things look quite similar. So what are the differences? What is it that tells me that I need to use a different approach to solve this problem versus this problem? Because for me, problem solving is all about differences. 
Kids aren't going to be given problems all neatly batched together, whether it's in an exam or whether it's in real life or whatever. Kids are going to get problems in isolation and be forced to think hard. What is this problem really about? And for me, attending to those differences, which kids do during SSDD problems, is really useful for that. Um, and so too is, is this notion of scheduling and retrieval opportunities. Um, if you've listened to my Daisy Christodoulou um, interview um, on, her, on her new book about teachers versus tech, one of my favorite conversations. Uh, we spoke about this and I reflected um, upon this in the takeaway that a lot of the focus in teaching goes on, goes into getting information in, getting kids to understand things in the moment. But for me, not enough, um, not enough focus, certainly in the way I used to do it, goes into uh, making sure that kids can retrieve that information, scheduling in these retrieval opportunities via starters, low stakes quizzes, mixed topic homeworks, or how interweaving whatever you choose to, however you choose to do it that is just as important as getting it in there in the first place because if kids kids can solve all the problems in the world in the moment but can they do it a week later a month later and so on and so forth and finally the final thing i wanted to reflect on uh, is online cpd um, it's a fascinating idea, you know, and I love this this notion of cognitive bias, biases, this status quo bias that things have always been the same, so they'll always continue to be the same. Um, now, I have a bit of experience of this um, a few years ago. Well, actually, actually, it's many years ago now, maybe like, God, six years ago, something like that. I did Joe Bowler's um, course uh, at Stanford University online course, and it was my first um, first attempt at doing any, any CPD online. And I really enjoyed it, you know. Um, I, I really like the idea that I could pause it and rewatch bits, and that's just something that you can't do practically when, when something's happening in person. Um, it wasn't a passive experience for me. It wasn't just kind of watch this video and then, you know, because there's a danger there. You, you can switch off. I'm looking out the window. I'm having a cup of tea, blah, 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 blah. But there was things to do. There was things to reflect on after each kind of short, sharp segment. And it's interesting, when I, when I look at the way I run CPD these days, I've almost, without perhaps, perhaps subconsciously, tried to replicate that. I do kind of short, sharp bursts, and then I give people three minutes to reflect on something. I give them a question to talk about with the person next to them and so on. I mean, that for me, hopefully keeps people engaged, keeps them thinking hard and so on. But there's there's nothing stopping that, that happening um, online. And, and Robert made the point as well that you don't have to complete it. You don't have to go from the start to finish. Um, I love that. It's like a cookbook, not a novel. You can dip in and, and take the bits and access the bits that you want at that particular time. So it's an interesting one. It's it's something I'm going to think hard about whether, I mean, maybe I, I experiment with this myself. Maybe maybe the Craig Barton online course, maybe maybe it's kicking off here. Maybe this is the world exclusive where this idea is born. Because um, it's just it's just seemed natural to me that I turn up at a school, I do talk, I do a workshop with a load of teachers, and then I go, I go home and the teachers all need to be there at that moment in time. And it's just... In this, this day and age, it, it just seems to me that there's got to be a better way of doing that. Teachers are busy, it's costly to get cover work and so on and so forth. And some teachers will have more energy, more attention at one given time compared to another time. And yeah, we, we have this flexibility in all other parts of life, but, um, but perhaps not in our CPD. And it was also interesting, wasn't it, when Robert said that... Um, that some teachers, even though they've got that flexibility, they still choose to have it essentially scheduled in. And I can relate to that. It's it's kind of, it's this this commitment. It's, it's like I, I tend to go to the gym the same time every week, even though I, I 
now I've got a bit more flexibility. I could go lots of different times. I like that structure. I like that routine. People are funny, hey? We're funny as a, as a, as a species. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I absolutely love the conversation with Robert. Do check out Open Middle Problems if, if you've not before. Um, and if you haven't used them for a while, now we've discussed different ways to use them. Perhaps it's, it's worth revisiting. Um, check out Robert's book and also his, um, his training course. Um, and there's links to all those in, in, in the show notes. So all that remains for me to do is once again thank Robert for his time. Um, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a huge thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in in your thousands to these episodes. You're the reason I do these, as well as my selfish uh, desire to speak to some of my, my educational heroes. But thank you. Um, if you want to support the podcast, the easiest way is to give it a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts from. I know it's a hassle to do that, but if you can do it, it makes a huge difference. Just the way these algorithms work, it really helps it flag it up. So if you get it from Podbean or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever, give, give it a rated or review. I'd really appreciate it. And the second thing you could do to help support the show is spread the word and perhaps pick out an episode. Maybe it's this episode. Maybe it's Daisy's episode. Maybe it's Dylan Williams' episode. Pick out one of your favorite episodes and recommend it to a friend or a colleague. And perhaps suggest they listen to it on their commute to work or whilst going for a walk or something like that. Again, it just helps spread the word. And if you did want to um, support the podcast more there's no pressure to do this but i do have a patreon page at uh, mr barton uh, patreon.com forward slash mr barton maths where you can sign up to buy me a mellow birds a month a mellow birds coffee month and, and it's it, honestly it's so nice that, um, that that so many of you have done that already it really does mean the world to me anyway um got some more cracking episodes coming up in the coming months and years hopefully so stay tuned for that but uh let's leave it there so thanks again you take care of yourself and bye for now <laughs>